This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. happy to be here because this is the most unpredictable hour in radio. Rather than me get to choose all that you see in here, it's your opportunity. It's time for The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. That's right. Now is your opportunity to ask anything you like about anything you like. The only thing, it doesn't mean I'm going to be able to answer it, but it means I am going to try. Uh, The only thing that we ask is that you put it in the form of a question, not looking for a lengthy commentary and then a word that says, right, or isn't that the case? No. Uh, Ask an actual question. Ideally, it's a question that's thought-provoking, a question that gets not only me thinking, but a lot of our our, uh, listeners uh, thinking. A question that um, gets them wanting to ask their friends and loved ones the same question as well. Or if you're just curious about my opinion on something, uh, you're certainly welcome to ask that. You have interesting questions about uh, the inside radio business or uh, anything we do on this show or why I've said something I've said, why I've done something I've done, any questions about my personal history. Um, Now is the time. 800-848-9222. Now, whoever comes up, up with the most interesting, most creative questions, Question, singular, in the eyes of our staff, as judged by Tony, Matt Blaze, and Elias, that person will be the proud recipient of, are you ready for it, a brand spanking new Other Side of Midnight refrigerator magnet. So get to dialing, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Let me be with Danny. Hi, Danny, what's your question? All right, so... My question I'll be posing to you, I feel will be hard for you to answer honestly, and I'm not blaming you, sir, but if a holy angel from heaven visited you, sir, and says that either, and this angel could determine your fate, and he says, either tomorrow you're fired from your radio job amidst false allegations, your name is ruined, and you're disgraced, mm-hmm. or tomorrow in some foreign country full of people you don't know, there's a massive earthquake killing, injuring, and replacing many. Nobody finds out your response, but we're gonna. How many Toronto. people? How many people are dying in that earthquake? Uh, let's say let's say fifty. How many? Let's say fifty. Fifty. Hmm. So and I get to I get to either be disgraced and lose my career, or have fifty people die. Well, you know, I know um, you may not believe me, but I'm going with uh, public disgrace. I think I would actually handle public disgrace pretty well. I uh, I think I would do like a, a Santos style uh, public rehabilitation tour, give my side of the story. I have a lot of friends that are publicly disgraced, and I think I would handle it pretty well. So I'm going with the uh, I'll save the people in the earthquake. 
Your career is over, Mr. Morano. You understand? I, I understand. I understand. I uh, recognize that. Well, I mean, I think I could probably get work, even if I'm disgraced, publicly doing something else. I mean, John Hinckley, who shot the president, is able to get work. So if Hinckley <laughs> can get work, I feel like I could probably get work at a convenience store or something somewhere. I hear. Okay. Uh, thank you, Danny. Good question, though. Or maybe it could be like uh, George Santos. Go on uh, Cameo, right? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Pete is in Piscataway. It's that way. Hello, Pete. Hi, Frank. Frank, what are your fa- three favorite TV series finales? Oh, um, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I, it really, I think... It really does reflect my favorite shows, right? So I'm going to have to say, uh, meaning shows that I really enjoyed, I have to, I think probably, uh, I I like the Seinfeld uh, series finale, so I'm going to have to go with that one. And I'm a huge Seinfeld fan. I think that's, that's right up there. I'm going to have to go with... Uh, the Sopranos, same same kind of deal. As for the third, that's a little more challenging. I, I part of me wants to say Veep. Uh, part of me wants to say um, Breaking Bad. Uh, um, I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with Veep. I think the way that that season that series finale was handled was really good. Although I'll be honest with you, Pete, with the uh, upcoming final season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, I do have very high um, expectations for the series finale of uh, of that show. So Mad Men, I also really enjoyed. But if I'm if I'm picking only three, I'm going Seinfeld. I'm going The Sopranos, and I'm going Veep. Great question, Pete. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Neil, what's your question, Neil? Hey, Frank. Uh, it's a two-parter. Uh, after listening to you for 13 years, I've become enamored with your intelligence, your girth of knowledge, and your wit. So I was wondering, Frank, if there was a special edition of Jeopardy and you went up against Ken Jennings, the first part is, could you clean his clock? And the second part of the question is, other than Jeopardy, what game show would you like to be on that you think you would do really well at? Oh, um, well, no, I definitely would not clean Ken Jennings' uh, clock because not only does the have not only does he have a lot of knowledge, but he knows how to play the game well. He knows how to wager. He knows how to use the buzzer. He knows, um, you know, he knows he knows all that stuff. Um, but uh, I, I, but it all depends on the categories. You know, yesterday or two days ago, I there was only one person that got Final Jeopardy correct, and I got Final Jeopardy correct. Uh, so you know, you sometimes you just get lucky. Yesterday there was a category on the Constitutional Convention. I swept the category, and there were no con, no no other contestants that swept the category. So if you had the categories being. 20th century third parties and um, the New York Mets and, you know, uh, you know, radio broadcasters. You know, I, I it all depends. Sometimes you get lucky with the categories and sometimes you don't. As far as other game shows that I think I would do well on, I always thought I would do OK on uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, but that's not on anymore. I... Um, I don't think I would do well on The Price is Right because that doesn't, you know, I don't know the price of anything. Um, you could tell me that a, a gallon of milk costs $3 or $15. I would have no idea which is closer to um, to the truth. I always thought I would do well on, um, is Millionaire still on? Do you know, Neil? 
No, it's not. No, it's not. Okay. Wheel of Fortune, uh, I, I I don't know. I don't think I would do that well on that game either. I um I don't even – so what else is on right now? I know you have Supermarket Sweep. I know you have uh, Wheel of Fortune. What else is on out there? I just watched Press Your Luck. I thought that's one of the best shows on uh, – they give away great prizes. And how does that game work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a board. The lights go around. If you press a button, uh, 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 a button in front of you, and if it lands on a prize, you get the prize, your money. If it lands on a whammy, you get four whammies, you're out of the game. Yeah, I, I see. I'm not up on that one. There was one game show that uh, Jay Leno was hosting. You bet your life. Uh, the, the old uh, re, uh, take on the old Groucho Marx show. I think I could do well at that because there's a trivia element of that. I'll go with that. I'll say uh, you bet your life. That's the uh, other game show that I'm comfortable going on. Okay, Frank. Thanks, Have Neil. A great great question. You too. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Moisha is in Brooklyn. Hello, Moisha. How you doing, Frank? I'm well, thank you. Um, I just wanted to know what you think about those tunnels, the Chabad Synagogue in Crown Heights. You heard about that? Yeah, I mean, we talked about it with Noam the other day. I mean, I think it's terrible. Nobody should be uh, creating illegal tunnels under buildings and uh, potentially putting multiple buildings uh, in danger. I I mean, I I thought it was terrible. And, you know, I, I think the people that were responsible for it they they certainly have, seem to have some extreme views, but they also seem to potentially be uh, maybe uh, have some sort of mental illness. At, because my understanding, and you know, I, I'm not an expert in this story, but it, you know, I've read the articles that I've seen about it. My understanding is the people that dug these tunnels they are from a sect that actually believes that uh, Rebbe uh, Schneerson was the second coming, was the Messiah. So I. Think I think that I would, uh, I mean, he would never have approved this kind of thing at all. This sort of, uh, you know, tunnel digging yeah. and p- putting t- people at, uh, at, at, in danger. So I, I think it's terrible, honestly. Yeah. Um, only some of them think that, that the Rebbe Schneerson is, is the Messiah. So why were the other well, ones doing it? No, those, pe- those people think, think that he's the Messiah. And right, it's, it's right. That's definitely... It's a real, the real shame that these people have such a false vision. And yeah, these were definitely extremists. Definitely oh no, no, extremists. no doubt about it, Moisha. Thank you. And I think the shame of it is that when you see something like that, it causes all sorts of other people to engage in all these anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. You saw a fella named Stu Peters on uh, on Twitter post who's being forced to sleep on these uh, child-sized soiled mattress hidden in illegal tunnels connected to a Jewish temple. So it it creates all these conspiracy theories. Oh, what what are they really doing? Why are they doing that? My my sister-in-law is an Orthodox Jew, and she said that uh, even somebody that she was friends with started asking her questions about uh, are they um you know are they hiding babies down there or something which of course they were not but it really just plays into a lot of these uh, anti-semitic tropes 800-848-9222 800-848-9222 john is on long island what's your question john 
Hey, Frank, quick thing, just a quick thing in regards to your son's uh, scar. There's some products that they're, they're scar gels. Do you want to put it on this? Scar away and Moderna. Just you know, I, I ordered oh, something, and I was talking with my yeah. wife about it yesterday, and she thinks that it's not a scar yet. She thinks it's still healing, so she ordered something else that may help okay. it heal. So hopefully it arrives tomorrow and we can start applying it right away. All right, my question to you is this. So uh, a few weeks ago, you had Dominic Carter and Anthony Weiner on the show. And I want to ask you, you as a journalist, I guess you are, to a certain extent, on a mindset of the political mindset of people. I'm amazed a guy like Anthony Weiner is like so like a drone-like personality. Now, is that really real? Or is he just gunning for his, his political group? He just wants to see what's right and wrong and so forth. What's the thinking of a guy like that? He just doesn't want to see it the way he should be seen, at least in my opinion. What's your thinking on that? What is that all about? By the way, he's got a great show. I listen to show all time he's got a great personality he's a very smart guy but with that said what's your thinking with something like that well i with with wiener specifically or or with people yeah, liberal commentators in general yeah, the way he defends the position, like you know, totally different things. He seems to have a very always has an angle to diffuse the, yeah. the, the reality of certain things. Well, a yeah. couple of things. Obviously, I can't speak for Anthony Weiner, but I, I do think he believes everything he's saying. I don't think he's taking anything. I don't think he's saying anything uh, for you know for the sake of uh, just being the 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 liberal on the on the radio. The other thing is, I, I think you know, it's kind of like um, you know, I went to NYU. NYU was, you know, I never really considered myself a conservative. Um, And I went to NYU and everybody was liberal. And when they would do things, you know, like have constant protests or, um, you know, have all these instances of, you know, these these, uh, demonstrations promoting this left-wing cause or that left-wing cause, even some that I agreed with, by the way, it almost made me... Because I'm a little bit of a contrarian, it made me more conservative. It made me kind of stand up a little bit more um, for conservatism because you feel like it, you you have a duty to kind of stand up against all these people coming in around you. When I was an intern at a talk radio station that was very conservative, almost everybody in the halls there was conservative. I went the other way. I felt the need to kind of be more liberal. I, I think by the nature of my personality, I'm kind of a contrarian. You go against where everybody else is. I think in the case of Anthony Weiner, it's a little bit of that. Weiner is um, a Democrat, and he kind of feels like it's his duty to stand up and bring what he perceives to be a little bit of common sense to a radio station where the vast majority of commentators are Trump supporters and the vast majority of listeners are Trump supporters. So sometimes he gets a little bit dug in. And look, I think maybe there is an element of um, theater in there, uh, maybe a little bit of an element of he maybe does enjoy being the bad guy, but I don't think he changes his position on anything. I think he believes everything that he says because, look, I listen to him, and he's got very considered views on everything. He doesn't, you know, react in a knee-jerk manner. I listened to his explanation last weekend, for instance, on why uh, Bill O'Reilly and Sid Rosenberg were incorrect on the issue of the asylum seekers. And he cited laws, he had facts, he had research. So I don't think you could say he's just jumping to a conclusion because it's the knee-jerk liberal position. All right, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Kenny is in Iowa. What's your question, Kenny? Hey, hi, Frank. I uh, I hope you can help me answer this question. Whenever I hear about... Um, 
people talking about uh, time travel, and they talk about going back in time, but they also talk about going forward in time. How could you go forward in time if it hasn't happened yet? Well, I don't understand that. I mean, I think that is one of the reasons that a lot of people believe that uh, time travel to the future is impossible. Uh, Because, I mean, according to NASA, and we're going to talk with a NASA scientist next hour, time travel is possible, but not as you'd expect, right? It's not possible to travel into the future faster than the current rate, but it's possible to speed up the passage of time in small increments. I don't know if you saw the film... um, Gravity. I think that was the one with uh, Matthew McConaughey. Um, well, I mean, that is, you know, that has to do with him going to a place where uh, time travels at a slower rate than what it does on Earth. So some say that time travels impossible because if it were possible, we would already be doing it. Others say time travels possible based on the laws of physics, but time travelers wouldn't be able to alter the past in any measurable way. Some theoretical physicists say that time travel can't be possible for one, the reason you you point out, but also that it would involve such vast amounts of energy. It's forbidden by the laws of physics. I have no idea, Kenny. I, I, I have no idea. Um, I don't know that anybody's traveled to the future except in science fiction movies. So I really can't say. We'll put this on our list for next hour. We're going to be joined by a real scientist, not someone that pretends to be one on radio, Um, Dr. Paul Sutter, who's an astrophysicist and a NASA advisor. We'll get into that with him. All right, we'll continue with your questions in a moment. 800-848-9222, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Shake your body, baby, do that conga. No, you can't control yourself any longer. Come on, shake your body, baby, do that conga. No, you can't control yourself any longer. Stefan singing about the conga. This was, you know, t- today is my Aunt Camille's birthday, and uh, she's like me. She doesn't like anybody to know how uh, how old she is, but, you know, she's getting up there. And uh, I spoke to her yesterday, asked what songs uh, she wanted to hear, and um, then her daughter, my cousin Liz, reached out to me and asked for um, bumper music on her mom's behalf. So this was one of the songs that my cousin Liz asked for 
for her mom, my Aunt Camille, who I'm hoping to see for lunch today. But um, it was not one of the specific ones that my Aunt Camille asked for. So uh, that that is uh, happy birthday, Aunt Camille. I hope that uh, Gloria Estefan song has a special meaning to you. 800-848-9222-800-848-9222. Alfredo is in Newark. Hello, Alfredo. Yes, Frank, how are you? I'm well. Frank, I hear many times in this session that many programs are number one in terms of rating. Uh, in your case, uh, how many people are listening every day to your program? Uh, how many people are, uh, you know, I've answered this before, and I got in trouble for being, I think, a little too accurate, so I'm going to plead the the fifth on this one, because uh, as I understand, and uh, this is how it was explained to me, that the ratings information is uh, proprietary, and they use that information to sell to advertisers, both in all of the markets that we're on and to national advertisers. So why would anybody pay for the ratings if some herkimajerk is just going to say them on the radio? So I have answered that question before. You can go back and listen to previous editions of this broadcast when that has come up, but I got in trouble and told not to mention it, so I'm not. I will say, though, I'm pretty confident there are a lot of people listening, many, many, many people listening, more than you probably think. I will say this. All right, 800-848-9222, Brandon is in New Jersey. Hello, Brandon. Hello. Well, Brandon, what's Hello. on your mind? Hey. Okay, well, I'm a son. You're sorry? You're my son? No. How much do I owe your mother? No, no. I'm I'm saying I'm his son. Oh. Okay, so if life is a simulation, why is there no glitches? Like, if it was a simulation, then we would see glitches lots of times. Well, we do see glitches. Um, You know, the... There's the Mandela effect. I don't know if you're familiar with the Mandela effect. Is your name Brandon also? I'm Junior. Junior. Okay. So I, I don't know if you're familiar with the Mandela effect, but basically the Mandela effect is when people remember different versions of an event from how it actually happened. And a lot of people believe that's a, a glitch in the simulation that we're living. Uh, a lot of people say that deja vu is an example of a glitch in the simulation. A lot of folks say uh, doppelgangers. When you encounter a stranger who looks exactly like you or you meet two people that look exactly like one another, um, or, you know, the, a lot of people have talked about the, 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 the telephone call. When the telephone rings a few minutes after someone passes away. So I think there are plenty of examples of glitches in the Matrix, but, you know, I don't know if this is a computer simulation or not, Brandon, and I'll be honest, I'm afraid to find out because I think the results would either be very boring or very catastrophic because whoever simulation it is, if whatever they're trying to determine by creating the simulation and observing us, if we now know it's a simulation, we might act differently. So I hope it's not a computer simulation, but I have no idea and I've decided I don't care to find out. Is that satisfactory? Thank you. Great question. 800-848-9222-800-848-9222. John is in Maryland. Hello, John. Thanks, Frank, for taking my call. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, career choice. Deep sea 
exploration or space? Which one would you choose? Huh. Um, well, what kind of deep sea exploration? Like a Jacques Cousteau type? Uh, something like uh, going to like the Mariana Trench, something that discovering something that hasn't been discovered. Hmm. Both seem very interesting. You know, I'm interested in space, right? So uh, that's that's kind of my my jam. So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with space on this one. Given the choice between the two as careers, I'll go with space. Thank you very much. Thank you. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Igor is in New Jersey. Hi, Igor. Yeah, greetings, Frank. Uh, as you probably know, uh, on last Sunday, uh, the the large broadcasting company Odyssey, as well as a podcaster, they uh, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy and uh, saying their revenues were significantly down. So I wanted to, to hear your views, opinions on that and what that might say about the future of, of, of terrestrial broadcast radio and its profitability. Well, look, it's not unusual for these big radio companies to go through bankruptcy. Uh, I was working for a company called Citadel that went through bankruptcy. Uh, I then, you know, I had a lot of friends that were working for a company called Cumulus and that went through bankruptcy. The, the first thing that it does See, it's bad news for shareholders. That's that's number one. It's also potentially bad news for anyone working for Odyssey that makes a lot of money because that allows them to renegotiate all those contracts and pay these talents a lot less. Uh, for instance, my friend uh, Curtis Lewa was working for uh, Cumulus when they went bankrupt, and they offered him a very generous amount of money to resign with with uh, not Cumulus with with, uh, with Citadel, and he. Chose chose not to because he knew they were going through bankruptcy and he knew that that contract would have essentially been null and void. So he went to a different radio company. I think um, if you're an air talent or at one of those companies, you're going through a lot of those same things. But I think it's going to give them a lot of flexibility. They've restructured the debt. I think uh, there might be pressure to sell some of those stations. And I think maybe in the long run, and uh, this is unfortunate for radio fans, maybe it'll make local programming on those uh, stations a little bit less. Uh, maybe they'll have uh, be, they'll be pressured to take less expensive syndicated programming. I don't know, but uh, Odyssey is saying uh, that that's not the case. They've received approval from the bankruptcy court to continue normal operations as of now. But I think it uh, does point to, one, the mistake that a lot of these giant media companies made in the 90s by getting, you know, so big, buying up all these stations, borrowing money to do it, and then running into the buzzsaw known as digital advertising, podcasting, satellite radio, and the like. So I don't know where it leads us. I think it potentially, um, I think the jury's still out, honestly, and that's the best answer I can give on where we... Um, on where we are, I don't know. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Denise is on Long Island. Hi, Denise. Hi, Frank. Frank, um, on a few occasions you mentioned about your wife being an animal lover. I know you are, too. Mm -hmm. But you did say that she's feeding a cat colony and that at some point later on when she retires, she would like to have a rescue organization. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if at this point in time she has any specific... Uh, agenda that people could support her in order to make this rescue organization uh, a reality. 
Well, you know, not at this point, uh, but I know um, I'll ask her if there's anyone that she wants me to mention. Most of the groups that she's involved with are, you know, basically small groups in our neighborhood and in the surrounding neighborhoods of just volunteers that uh, that that feed these cats uh, at a cat colony and then trap them and uh, take them to get neutered. It's not really a a formal organization or anything along those lines, but I, I appreciate you asking. No, I know, but you specifically said when she retires that you would like to have a rescue organization. Right. I, I think, or a rescue, like a sanctuary. Yeah, I think we're a long ways away from that uh, at this point, so I wouldn't know where to, where to direct people in terms, of, uh, in terms of money or anything like that. But, uh, okay. uh, yeah, there's no, nothing specific at this point, Denise, but I appreciate you asking. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Bob is in Manorville. Hi, Bob. Hey, Frank, how you doing? Uh, I know you're a NFL football fan. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware, or maybe you are, that um, this weekend is the first weekend that the um, NBC, the Peacock, Peacock app, mm-hmm. gonna, uh, the game between uh, the Miami Dolphins and the Kansas City right. Chiefs. You're not going to be able to watch yep. it on uh, Yep, we got Channel into this 4. with Noam yesterday, right. Okay, so um, my, I, there is a question at the end of this. Um, how unfair that is. I mean, uh, people have been watching the playoffs, the NFL for years. I can understand they do it in a regular season with uh, Prime. But, you know, there's, there's plenty of elderly people, you know, who don't rely on the Internet. They just want to turn their TV on and they're looking forward to the playoffs. And so my question is, do you think that there's going to be a, backlash because it is i don't i don't, uh, I don't I Bob. never i will i will never ever get the piac app all right well I, yeah i i don't actually i actually think you're going to see a lot more of this i think the reason nbc paid 110 million dollars uh i think that's around what they paid to the nfl is precisely so they can make money right so by doing this you know it, they're they're expecting people more people to get the Peacock app and to subscribe to it. And they're expecting that in the long run, this will be a win for them. Now, I appreciate the fact that you won't, and I know a lot of other people won't. They're betting that in the long run, enough people will. And that's why they're spending this money. Now, it would be great to watch the game for free on television. I feel the same way about, you know, all these other events that are not broadcast on radio. I'd love to listen to the Academy Awards and the Golden Globes on uh, radio and WrestleMania, for instance, on radio. I can't do it. I have to... Again, use uh, Peacock for uh, WrestleMania. But in a lot of ways, it's kind of like, you know, uh, when the satellite companies paid Howard Stern, happy birthday, Howard Stern, by the way, a whole bunch of money, Sirius paid him all this money in the hopes that they would get new subscribers. And you know what? A lot of people stopped listening because they couldn't listen to him for free. But a lot of people ended up uh, paying the subscription fee to listen to him on Sirius. It's business. It's the business of sports and in the business of media. If you had a means of distribution and you were willing to spend $160 million for the broadcasting rights to an NFL playoff game, you know what? They would be on Bob TV faster than you can say without the express written consent of the NFL. All right, 800-848-9222. One open line. If you have a question, now's the time to ask. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight.
other side at midnight with Frank Morano. This is Brandy by Looking Glass. This is a birthday bumper music selection by my friend Frank Fontaino, who, along with Howard Stern and Rush Limbaugh and my Aunt Camille, is celebrating his birthday today. So, happy birthday, uh, Frank Fontaino. I'm actually going to be having dinner with Frank tomorrow night. So I'm looking forward to seeing him and uh, maybe buying him a drink for his birthday. Not a whole dinner because it's an expensive restaurant, but... I don't know if I could get that six dollar and thirty one cent check in time. Maybe I will. Maybe I will, I will buy dinner. All right, we are uh, answering your questions on any subject as part of the other side of midnight. Proudly presents Ask Frank. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Ed is in Westchester. What's your question, Ed? Hey Frank, I actually have a question on proper talk show etiquette. Okay. Uh, and it's a three-tier question, so if you can, uh, I throw out all three questions. Okay. My first question is, um, who decides to actually, well, actually, the first question is, who actually hangs up the phone during a talk show uh, interchange? My second question is, how do you decide when is the proper time to hang up on the caller? And the third sh- question, hopefully I'll get to the third question before you hang up on me, is in talk radio school, do they tell you when to say thanks for the call? Is there a particular time? Because I hear it all the time. Sometimes I hear it, sometimes I don't. So I'll throw it out there. Uh, okay. Uh, first question. Well, I can only I can speak to this show, but I've observed a lot of other shows. On this show, I hang up on people, right? Nobody else but me, I hang up on people. On other shows, and you know, if Tony or Matt want to comment on what other hosts do, they're, they're certainly welcome to. On other shows, I've seen um, the engineer be the person that ends the call. Sometimes it's the result of uh, a hand gesture, or uh, sometimes when you hear someone say thanks for the call, that's an indication that the uh, call is being terminated. Uh, but no, no, I, I don't remember. I, again, it's been a while since I've uh, taken any classes in broadcasting. I could probably use a few more. I, I, it, I don't remember anybody saying that there's an appropriate place to say um, thanks for the call. And as far as when to hang up on the call, that's entirely at the discretion of the of the host. Uh, Tony, anything you want to add to this? Uh, you're a guy that works on a lot of shows. It's just the vibe, you know, just depending on how 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 the conversation is going. If the conversation is not going well, next. Okay, well, there you have it, Ed. Ed well, yeah, go ahead, say, Matt. Thank when, you so much. Thank you so much for keeping me on till the end of the call. Right? Yeah, sure thing. Matt, anything you want to add there? Well, I was going to say, yeah, when people start repeating themselves, it's time to end the call. When gotcha, they run out good. of stuff to say, that's good. And now it's time to go. Yeah, uh, there's some hosts that I find uh, I repeat themselves a lot, and I wish I could end that call from. As a listener, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Russ is in White Plains. Hi, Russ. Hey, Frank. Congratulations on having a variety of childlike listeners, including Brandon Jr., 
and the notorious Vincent of Brooklyn, even though Vincent sounds like a concussed version of a Sopranos character. I love Vincent. Frank, I Vincent's an American you. hero. Oh. Yeah, I know. He, he calls uh, shows on WABC. It's great to have him. Yeah. Um, hey, the question is, can Obama now be charged with the intentional drone death of that innocent U.S. teenager in 2014, you know, once Trump takes office? You know, that is such a good question. And you're talking about not by the International Criminal Court in The Hague. You're talking about by American authorities. Well, you know, like they're indicting Trump. Yeah. You know, uh, you know for, it's such a good question. You know, uh, there's murder, obviously, and war crimes are two things for their, which there's no statute of limitations. Now, uh, President right. Obama killed more people with drones than any Nobel Peace Prize winner in history. And that's a record I'm sure he's very proud of. Um, there's no question, in my view, that it was completely unconstitutional, a violation of both the Fourth Amendment and the Fifth Amendment. And I think there's a case to be made, and people like Judge Napolitano, Ron Paul, other people that know the Constitution much better than me, say that not only was the killing of that Denver-born teenager completely unconstitutional, but a lot of people, including Napolitano and Ron Paul, believe that the killing of Anwar al-Awlaki, who was an American citizen, that that was also unconstitutional. Now, I'm not willing to go that far. I think once you become the head of al-Qaeda, maybe maybe you put a drone target on your back. But uh, President Obama's attorney general, Eric Holder, had advised Obama that the killing was lawful. So I'm sure that's what, um, you know, that he would hang his hat on. But what uh, what Holder said was that uh, basically it was the equivalent of if Alwaki had, um, it was a bank robber that got killed by the cops as he was trying to get away. But Holder mm-hmm. forgets that Alwaki was unarmed, was not charged with a crime, was not indicted for any crime, was never accused of violence, and was not even the subject of an arrest warrant when a drone basically you know executed him while sitting at an outdoor cafe in Yemen so as far as the teenager goes it's a great question you know uh, someone else just suggested that we're overdue for a chat with Judge Napolitano so I'm going to reach out to him tonight and see if he wants to come on the program maybe Monday or Tuesday and I will pose that very question to him I don't know what the protocol would be but I would think the answer is yes Russ Frank, the teenager was Awalaki's son. I know. I'm aware. I'm aware. Son. Yeah, I'm aware. Okay. No, and, but and, and, yeah. and one separate question: Can I ask you, Does outing Taylor Swift make her fans more likely to vote Democratic in 2024? Thank you very much. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Two open lines. If you have a question, Joaquin is in Pennsylvania. Hi, Joaquin. Frank, you and me, we have experience with that hanging up thing when you called me an idiot. <laughs> anyway. Uh, are you up for an episode of Morano 101, What Would Frank Say? Sure, I'm ready. Okay. I was recently uh, exposed to my, uh, the Can't annual why uh, I called this guy an idiot. Uh, sexual harassment. Uh, oh, come on. What do you call it? Um, Training. Anyway, yeah, in- instruction. And so anyway, the, the thing came up where, you know, Bambi, her supervisor, Mr. Jeremy, uh, there's a, a new position that Bambi wants to take. And he suggests that she's not quite as qualified, but he could pull some strings, you know. Right. And uh, so anyway, they have to go away on a business trip. And so she decides to invite Mr. Jeremy Ron up to her uh, hotel room that, you know, they can discuss this a little further. And she actually seduces him and says, you know what, if you can pull those strings for me, you know, I'll be happy to take care of you. Well, anyway, she does wind up assuming the new position, 
but then subsequently gets demoted because she just didn't have the skills to handle it. Mm. She turns around and accuses Mr. Jeremy, her supervisor, of sexual harassment or quid pro quo. However, isn't Bambi guilty of uh, prostitution? Well, I don't know that she's guilty of of prostitution, but I think the gray area that you describe with that question really is such an indication of why it's a mistake to get involved with someone at the workplace. I mean, because stuff like that can happen all the time. This is the situation with Jeff Zucker, right? I mean, stuff like this goes on constantly, right? I mean, um, I think it's really unwise because you end up in situations like that. You're in something which, which begins as a consensual relationship, and then things go sour, either professionally or personally, and it screws up the other. Now, again, uh, my father met at least two of his wives on at the workplace. So, you know, it does happen. Bill de Blasio met his ex-wife at the workplace. It happens. Um, because you spend a lot of time working, these are the people that you're around. I'm trying to. I've been involved uh, with women in the workplace very, very rarely, um, but a couple times over the years, and it's it's very rarely a if ever um, a a good idea. Precisely because of that is what sexual harassment and you know it's just it's just messy, big mistake. It's like George when he describes um, you know that woman at work that he ends up sleeping with after seeing her at the party. Every day has the awkwardness of a date, and it really ends up screwing up the relationship and potentially the professional relationship. 800-848-9222. David is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hi, David. Yes, good morning, Frank. Good morning. The other day when you were discussing that film, uh, May, December, with Julianne Moore and Mm -hmm. Natalie Portman, you had indicated that a six-year-old boy who had sex with a 30-plus-year-old woman has some type of bragging rights, and you didn't seem to think it was a big deal. Now, my question to you is, does that same rule apply if a six-year-old girl has sex with a 35-year-old man? No. And mm-hmm. it, All right, really. And the other uh, part of the question is, if a 35-year-old woman seduced Carmine when he was 16 years old, would you think that's a big deal? Okay. Uh, let me answer the first uh, part of the question first and then do my best with the second part of the question. And then uh, we have two open lines if people want to comment, 800-848-9222. Um, Star Trek fans will appreciate this. There's a Star Trek episode called A Mock Time where we're introduced to the Vulcan concept of Ponfar, which I think occurs once every seven years, but don't hold me to that. And basically Spock is going crazy. Because he's so blinded by this 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 um, lust, this blood lust within him, that he has to go to Vulcan and take a wife, and he's going crazy. He's doing all things that are unspock like. He's throwing things. He's screaming at Nurse Chapel. He's uh, prepared to kill his best friend, and he would never do that, but for the fact that he's totally blinded by hormones dictating that he has to have sex, essentially. Um, for a, look, I can't speak to the homosexual nature of things, but for a heterosexual young man between the ages of 13 and 19, every day is like Ponfar. You're totally unreasonable. You're totally blinded by this hormonal desire to mate. And so you're going to tell me that the ultimate, you know, coupe de grace for a young man, which is to bed an older woman, is 
a crime? I know technically it is, and I guess it has to be. It's not. Uh, that older woman is doing that 16-year-old a b- boy or male a-, a public service. It is the equivalent of giving a man dying of thirst in the desert a canteen of water. It is a tremendous lifeline and public service. And I don't buy for a second that any 16-year-old young man, unless he has special issues, um, you know, educational disabilities or autism, or if he's got, you know, if he's got special issues, but a standard 16-year-old boy, there is no way in, in the world that he's traumatized by that encounter. She's doing him an incredible service, and for that person to be thrown in prison, I think is a tremendous travesty. It is 100% not the same for a 35-year-old male to uh, do that with a 16-year-old woman. I don't know why it's not the same. It's just not. Uh, Primarily, I think, because men are by, by their very nature predatorial and women are not in, in that in that you know in the standard sense in the sexual sense as far if it was my son um what I think it was a big deal I it's a good question you know I would have a conversation with him about the birds and the bees long before he was 16 and make sure he was educated about you know not being uh careless with other people's emotions and kind of understanding uh, what goes on when you have relationships of an intimate level but I have to say um if it was like a 35-year-old woman down the block, not a a teacher or a principal, I'm going to be honest. No, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's a, a big deal, uh, David. All right, Frank. Uh, just one thing, and because uh, I, I, I sort of agree with some of the things you said, but let me just say this: I think it's incredibly chauvinistic of you to not have uh, the um, understanding that young women probably have the same sexual desires as young men, that you're making women sound prudish. And, and you're, you're uh, I think, I don't know what women you met when you were 16, but the ones that I've encountered uh, when I was that age were just as sexually um, inclined as young men. So I don't know where you get that idea from. I'm just curious if you have a reason for your belief that women don't have those same desires at that age. Well, first, um, any the the one thing that every woman that I that hadn't co- that I met when I was 16 had in common is none of them wanted to have sex with me. That was the one standard I I noticed with every single one of them. Um, but second, I, I just it's it's different. I, I know that teenage girls are or her, hormonal as well. I think it's just different. I just I, I don't know how to. I think it just is part of the differences that we experience with different genders. I realize that's going to be um, you know it's a very weak answer, but it's the best one that I have. Thanks for the call, David, and a thought provoking question. Now, I'm not suggesting you change the laws. I'm not. However, that's why we have prosecutorial discretion. And if you are a pervy 50-year-old teacher that is leering at a 15-year-old girl every day of class and working so hard to seduce her every single day, and finally she relents and, and succumbs to your seduction, you're, you're a creep. I, I can see a scenario in which you should be put in prison. If you're a 35-year-old woman in the same scenario with a 15- or 16-year-old boy, 
no prosecutor should ever seek jail time for you because it's just it's unjust and it's just completely wrong in my judgment. Sorry if that's a weak answer, but it is. It, that's the case. 800-848-9222. Uh, George is in New York. Hi, George. Hi. An attractive 35-year-old. Yeah, I, oh, yeah, I know, but, I know, but right. you know, you got, when you're 15 or 16, uh, attraction... I agree with you 100%. Uh, attraction is, is almost secondary in a lot of respects. You're pretty, right. You get pretty flexible pretty quickly. I agree with you 100% the last couple of minutes, whatever you've said. Now, here's the question I have. Now, the word nuclear has been mispronounced, you know, by presidents, including Eisenhower, Carter, uh, George W. Bush, who they say used to do it deliberately, you know, uh, for popularity reasons. Now, uh, in your opinion which is mine, actually. I believe that uh, due to the fact that they did not see the word, you know, the spellings, Mm -hmm. uh, they thought nuclear was spelled N-U-C-U-L-A-R rather than N-U-C-L-E-A-R. Also, Semitic, right, is spelled I-T-I-C, not E-T-I-C. You are the only person in the past years I've been paying tremendous attention. You are the only one who just about half an hour ago pronounced Semitic, anti-Semitic correctly. Everybody else, Bill Riley, everyone pronounces it anti-Semitic, which means that they believe the space. Uh, uh, George, so real quick with your question here, because we only have about 45 right. seconds. So uh, give me your comment regarding the uh, what I just said. Yeah, uh, first artist, my first comment is that is a textbook example of how not to handle Ask Frank Anything. You, you should start your question with what, where, who, how, does, do, are, you know, questions. Um, do I think people mispronounce things because they can't spell? No, no. I I mean, I think people pronounce things the way they've heard them generally. Um, and you know, look, until recently, I thought I was pronouncing poinsettia correctly. I was pronouncing it as poinsettia when in fact it is poinsettia. Look, people make mistakes. Everyone says that I pronounce the word until as until. Um, I'm not conscious of that. I don't know why I do that, but I do. So that's it. Hey, Mike, Nate, and Robert, if you want to hold, I'll try and get to your question next hour. Hey, you guys have a consensus on best question. Brandon Jr. Brandon Jr., call back. There is a magnet in your future, unless, of course, this is a simulation. Keep asking questions. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
story that's a little heavier than I would generally like to do on a Friday. But I've had it on my list for all week. So I said I, I may as well I may as well do it now because something always gets in the way. Uh, this story drives me crazy <clears throat> because four FBI agents. I'm going to give you the basics first. Four FBI agents posing as ISIS members began <clears throat> began chatting online with Humza Mashkur. When he was 16 years old, he was arrested on terrorism charges weeks after his 18th birthday. Essentially, and I'll give you the details in a second, these undercover FBI agents helped this autistic teen plan a trip to join ISIS. And then as soon as he turned 18, they arrested him. And I saw that. And the story just came out. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I feel like I just did that story a couple of months ago. Well, sure enough, it was a different story. Same reporter, same publication, The Intercept. But it was a different story. It was from June of last year where the a different, different young man, but the same story. The FBI groomed a 16-year-old with brain development issues to become a terrorist. That was the story of Matteo Ventura. That was from June of last year. So uh, you look at all the details of these stories and you look, and unfortunately, it looks like this is not an exception. This is what the FBI does. They create crimes to arrest people. Uh, you know, an autistic 16-year-old made extremist posts online, which attracted the interest of the FBI, which dedicated four, count them, four undercover agents into grooming him into supporting ISIS. When he turned 18, they arrested him. And unfortunately, the more you look at this, the more you see what a problem this is. Many of the post-9-11 domestic, quote-unquote, domestic terror attacks the FBI congratulated itself for breaking up were, in fact, created and directed by the FBI, which targeted vulnerable Muslims to join. That's why... One of the reasons why, anyway, disbelief that FBI does the same thing for right-wing groups requires historical ignorance. We spoke about the Michigan kidnapping case, for instance. Uh, Glenn Greenwald, when he was with The Intercept, reported on so many of these quote-unquote war-on-terror entrapment cases where the FBI would use informants to lure poor or mentally unstable young Muslims to join plots created not by ISIS, but by the FBI. In 2015, uh, Greenwald did an article about this headline, Why Does the FBI Have to Manufacture Its Own Plots If Terrorism and ISIS Are Such Grave Threats? But let's not look at 2015. Let's not look at June. Let's just look at this. Hamza Mashkur had just cleared security at... This is from The Intercept. I'm going to link to this article on my Facebook page. If you want to read it, you are welcome to do so. Um, Hamza Mashkor had just cleared security at Denver International Airport when the FBI showed up. The agents had come to arrest the 18-year-old who's diagnosed with a developmental disability and charge him with a terror-related crime. At the time of the arrest, a relative later said in court, Mashkor was reading 
Diary of a Wimpy Kid. That's a book written for elementary school children. Mashkur had gone to the airport on December 18th to fly to Dubai and from there to either Syria or Afghanistan as part of his alleged plot to join the Islamic State. The trip had been spurred by over a year of online exchanges starting when Mashkur was 16 years old with four people he believed were members of ISIS. That's according to the uh, Justice Department's criminal complaint. The four were actually undercover FBI agents. As a result of his conversations with the FBI, Mashkur could face a lengthy sentence for attempting to provide material support to a terrorist organization. Again, he wasn't trying to provide material support to a terrorist organization. He was trying to provide material support to a fake terrorist organization created by the FBI. At an initial court hearing, the family member said that Mashkor, who had turned 18 just a few weeks prior to the arrest, had intellectual difficulties and was diagnosed with autism. Despite acknowledging Mashkor's family support and his young age, the judge ordered that he be detained while awaiting trial. The judge said, it's not lost on this court that Mr. Mashkor is a young man with possible mental illness and the diagnosis of high-functioning autism. It is clear he has a sea of familial support, but based on the evidence, there's no reasonable assurance that the court can simply chalk all this up to the defendant simply being a young man. So law enforcement agents first became aware of Mashkor's online activities in November of 2021. Well, what would you do if my son was posting something even mildly supportive of Islamic extremism or ISIS? You know what I would hope law enforcement would do? Call me up or knock on my door. Mr. Morano, there are some things your son is involved in on the Internet that you need to be aware of. That's what I would hope. They didn't do that. Instead, um, instead of alerting his family, FBI agents posed as ISIS members, and they took this young man that had no friends, and they befriended him. A year later... And they strung him along until he became a legal adult. I, the defense attorney representing this young man said, and I agree with him, it is appalling that the government never once reached out to his parents, even while they were sending undercover agents to befriend him online starting when he was 16 years old. Almost all of the conduct he's alleged to have committed took place when he was a, a juvenile. And... You know, more details may emerge on the circumstances of uh, Mashkor's attempt to join ISIS, but the facts as laid out in the criminal complaint, and you can see all this in this Intercept article I just posted, they're hallmarks of terrorism prosecutions based on these FBI sting. A young man with developmental disabilities and no friends, already on the police's radar due to mental health episodes and conflict with families, is groomed as a minor over a long period by a group of undercover FBI agents, agents that you're paying for. This time that they're spending cultivating all this young man and uh, getting him to want to join ISIS, you're paying for all that time. Mashkur's case follows a pattern of FBI sting operations in which a teenager is arrested shortly after their 18th birthday. As in similar cases, the court documents here suggests that Mashkur was limited in his ability to execute a terrorist plot on his own. 
uh, Sahar Aziz, a national security expert and law professor at Rutgers, said this case appears consistent with a common fact pattern seen in tens, if not hundreds, of terrorism-related cases in which the FBI has effectively manufactured terrorist prosecutions. In this case, it was a 16-year-old kid who otherwise would have just sat in his relative's basement posting offensive content in a manner similar to a, a proud boy, people whom the FBI does not necessarily seem to spend enormous resources trying to entrap this is the press release. Uh, this is the um, law professor saying this, not me. Just so that they can get a high-profile press release. So Mashkor, this young man, first came to the authorities' radar for social media posts around the time of his 16th birthday. And according to the complaint, Mashkor began posting in support of terrorism in November of 2021. And a platform he used alerted the FBI of suspicious activity. Let's say it's Facebook. Facebook tips off the FBI. July of 2022, local police are called to Mashkor's home after he allegedly assaulted a family member during a dispute. Unfortunately, this happens with a lot of teenagers with developmental disabilities. At the time, a relative told police about Mashkor's mental illness and autism diagnosis. Two months later, Mashkor began communicating with an undercover FBI agent posing as a member of ISIS. The agent eventually introduced Mashkor to three other FBI agents who were also impersonating ISIS members. With their encouragement, Mashkor developed a plan to support the terror group. So along with extensive discussions of what types of services he might provide ISIS, Mashkor regularly confided in the agents about his boredom, his family problems, his hopes of getting married someday, his struggles with mental health, the things that you would tell friends. He constantly referred to being a minor, complaining that being under 18 and subject to the monitoring of family members made it hard for him to travel or send funds. Mashkor's anxieties come through in these chats, included in the indictment. You can read them for yourself most of which are limited to his sides of the conversation. And at one point, he told an agent he was considering finding a wife who might be willing to join him in Afghanistan, but he worried about the possibility of abandoning her if he was killed. Mashkor also went back and forth about whether he even wanted to join ISIS. Throughout the chats with these undercover agents, Mashkor expressed support for ISIS and fantasized about fighting with militants abroad, but he also shared doubts about joining the group, as well as concerns that he lacked connections of his own in Afghanistan and Syria. In one message, he worried that, quote, the brothers there might not support me in getting married and may just strap something on me and throw me out into the field. He may, he suggests at one point, instead get a job and finish high school. Well, I would hope that somebody in law enforcement would say, yeah, do that, finish high school, get a job. They didn't. They kept pushing him along encouraging him towards Islamic extremism until they had enough to nail him and until he turned 18. I think this is shameful. But what's shameful about this is that it's not an F, an isolated incident. The FBI is doing this all the time. I'm not saying this young man shouldn't be prosecuted. He broke the law. Uh, he should be, absolutely. But the FBI needs to stop doing this. They need a whole new approach to dealing with Autistic teenagers that are that are loners and just looking for a friend. And this is very problematic that this is not an exception, but the modus operandi 
for the FBI. We'll talk science, space, and more. If you want to comment in uh, in you know in on anything, you can do so. 800-848-9222. Uh, we're going to talk with Dr. Paul Sutter, a genuine, honest to God astrophysicist and NASA advisor. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. She packed my bags last night, pre-flight. Zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm going to be high as a kite. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. This is a show where we seek to explore the mysteries of the universe. I don't think there's anything more mysterious than the universe itself. You look up at the stars and you wonder what's out there, what's beyond what we can see. Well, uh, I have really enjoyed some of the folks that we've gotten to talk to on this subject over the last three years, but I don't know that there's anybody that is more accomplished accomplished than my next guest. You could love him, you can hate him, but you can't say he doesn't know what he's talking about. The man is a theoretical cosmologist. He is an award-winning science communicator. He is a NASA advisor, a U.S. cultural ambassador, a globally recognized leader in the intersection of art and science. He's a research professor, an author of multiple books, including the forthcoming book, Rescuing Science, Restoring Trust in an Age of Doubt. Very pleased to welcome to the program, gentlemen, I've become a, a great admirer of, Dr. Paul Sutter. Dr. Sutter, thanks for joining me on the radio. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And yeah, you can hate me. I just hope nobody does. <laughs> you and me both. With this audience, <laughs> it's tough, though. I'm telling you. Uh, Dr. Sutter, what, what made you want to be a spaceman? You're involved in space from about every possible perspective, other than, I guess, regularly cruising around in a space shuttle somewhere. What made you want to do this? What inspired your interest in this? Yeah, and the only thing that's stopping me about that is I can't afford a ticket. Yeah, you, you, and both. you and me yeah. both. Maybe we can uh, shuttle pool or something. Exactly. Can we can we take a hot seat? Do we get to share? <laughs> like, um, I've, I've ever since uh, I was a little kid, I've loved space. I loved astronomy. I love science. I love reading. I love learning. Um, just all the usual nerdy things and. Uh, actually, it wasn't until college, however, the middle of college, that I realized that I could actually have a career in this. I went to college initially as a major in computer science because, you know, I'm still a nerd. Um, and I loved all these astronomy topics and, and physics and cosmology. And I never realized that that kind of job could be for me, that I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't going to the right schools. I wasn't getting the right education. I didn't have the right background. Um and then my third year of college, I took an elective astronomy course because I had always held this love for it. And two weeks in, the professor pulled me aside and said, you know, you're actually kind of good at this. And it can be a job. 
totally broke my brain. I did not realize <laughs> it was possible. And uh, within a week, I switched majors to physics, and I never looked back. I, I think that's uh, that's terrific. It reminds me of my uh, m- my realization when I learned that you could actually be on the radio as a job. Very similar. Um, <laughs> let's get the most important question, maybe the most difficult question, out of the way, and it'll allow, I guess, our listeners to judge whether you're a part of the uh, government cover-up or you're a part of the solution here. Are aliens visiting this planet on a regular basis? <laughs> if I am a part of the government cover-up, I wish I could get paid more. Like, there seems to be no clear correlation between being part of the conspiracy and having a lavish lifestyle. Uh, to me, there is no evidence whatsoever that uh, aliens have visited the Earth. So uh, obviously, uh, Congress has looked into this. We've seen uh, we've seen these these tic tac videos. We've seen uh, Navy pilots chasing some objects that they simply just can't explain. If these objects aren't aliens, serious. This is a serious question. If these objects aren't aliens, what do you think they are? I'm going to say three words, and. People believe these three words are a capitulation, but actually they're a celebration. The the key, the three words are "I don't know." Hmm. Yeah, you and, and me it's both. okay. Yeah, yeah, it's okay to say "I don't know." And the other side of that coin is, if you claim that these are images of alien spacecraft, then you are claiming to know what they are. And when you make a statement that say, I know what this is, then you must back it up by Mm -hmm. Mm him. And you need multiple lines of evidence. The bar for convincing scientists is very much higher than it is for non-scientists. This is how we operate. This is how we work together to, to discover the inner workings of nature is by setting a very, very high bar for the standards of evidence. And it's okay in science. In fact, it is encouraged to say, I don't know, because that means there is an opportunity to learn more about the universe. I do not believe that uh, aliens have visited. There has not been any strong evidence to me that has convinced me that aliens have visited us. When I see those videos, when I see the UAP reports and all that, I say, huh, that's kind of weird. I don't know what that is. Obviously, on Monday, there was a lot of attention paid to the latest lunar mission. There was a lot of optimism about this. This was something that was billed as uh, kind of a um, a merger of private sector space exploration with government sponsored space exploration. Doesn't it did not go according to plan, needless to say. How disappointed are you about what happened with the lunar mission this week? The Peregrine? Yeah, I'm I'm heartbroken and the especially for the the team, the people that have poured years, uh, not just the money, but the human investment into this. Uh, and it carries all every mission into space carries along with it, you know, hope and work and sweat and anticipation for the future. And when things go wrong, it is hard. It is really hard. But that is the ultimate lesson of space that Space is hard. Operating in space is the most unfamiliar environment we could possibly operate in as humans. And we have to learn a lot if we want to be a successful Mm. interplanetary or interstellar species. We have to do it the hard way because the hard way is the only way. Nature does not 
allow cheaters in this universe. And so we're going to make mistakes. We're going to have uh, colossal failures. And, and really, in science and engineering in this kind of environment, the only time you truly fail is when you don't learn something. And I guarantee the company behind the, the lunar lander, they've already learned a lot about the mistakes they've made. Hopefully they learn a lot more. And the second shot makes it all worth it. People are just tuning in. We're talking with uh, Dr. Paul Sutter. He's an astrophysicist, a science educator, and a cultural ambassador. You can check out his website at pmsutter.com. That's S-U-T-T-E-R.com. Also written a few books, which we'll talk about in just a moment. With what happened with the lunar mission this week, Dr. Sutter, do you think that's an indication that the Artemis mission, which was going to be uh, you know, put into motion, I think, next year is not going to happen anytime soon. Artemis is such a tricky subject because it's about much more than the machine. It's about the politics. It's about NASA funding. It's about ensuring jobs programs. It's about uh, maintaining ways of thinking. It's, it's about engineering practices that are quickly becoming outdated. I've never been too bullish on the Artemis project. I believe, and this is coming from my own experiences, observing that the delays with the James Webb Space Telescope, which was something like mm. 10 years and $5 billion uh, over budget. Um, the Artemis Project, I unfortunately, I think the Artemis Project is going to keep going. There's going to be continued funding for it, not enough funding to actually get it going anytime soon. And I think it will be delayed and delayed and delayed. And I actually suspect that there are opportunities here for private companies like SpaceX uh, to simply eclipse it. The um, you know, you talk about Artemis and the politics behind the technology. I think a lot of folks in our audience remember uh, President Kennedy's uh, speech back in 1962 uh, saying that the resources of the country should be dedicated to returning him, putting a man on the moon and returning him back before this decade is out. And even though he didn't live to see it, that timeline did come to fruition. And it seemed like between 1969 and 1973, we're going to the moon all the time. We haven't been back since 1973. The last three or four presidents have all said, let's go back to the moon. Not one of them has been able to do it. Why were we able to get to the moon so easily in the late 60s, early 70s? And it's been 50 years since we've been back. Why has it taken so long for us to get back to the moon? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there are a, a few reasons. One reason is money. At the height of the Apollo era, NASA was taking something like 4% of the entire federal budget. And almost all the money that NASA was getting was going into the, the, the crewed space program, the Apollo program. And so we're spending a significant fraction of all of our wealth as a nation on getting to the moon. Nowadays, NASA is something like 0.5% of the federal budget, and then the money that, money that NASA is getting is spread out amongst many, many different projects, not just crewed missions to the moon. 
and much of NASA's own budget is not even up to NASA. It's it's directed by Congress, mm. line item by line item. They say, okay, NASA, you're going to spend this much money on this program, and then this much money on this program, and then this much money on this program, and this much money on the Artemis project. And then NASA says, well, that's not enough money to achieve the goals of the Artemis project. And then Congress responds with, well, you know, I don't know, too bad. You're smart or something. Figure it out. So one is just raw money. Like we are not spending the money that we were 50 or 70 years ago. The other is that we are in a much different culture uh, and society when it comes to acceptable levels of risk in the space program. Apollo 1, three astronauts died in a horrible accident. And we kept going. Mm -hmm. Today, that would be inexcusable. Uh The entire program would be shut down. We have a much lower tolerance for loss of life in space programs. And even loss of vehicles, like uh, the private companies are able to get away with a lot more losses, a lot more explosions on the launch pad, a lot more mishaps in orbit. The way NASA operates now is much more risk averse than it was 70 years ago because there is Congress sitting over their shoulder. And if imagine if the Artemis test flight from last year, if it blew up on the launch pad, we would not be discussing the future of Artemis at all today. All right. So let's talk about your book, Rescuing Science, Restoring Trust in an Age of Doubt. Let's talk about the doubt. We, we've had a lot of doubters call into the show. I've interviewed many of them as guests. We've had uh, people who uh, think that the world is flat and uh, every other variety of doubt to anything that there's consensus among scientists about from uh, climate change to, you know, um, really just at, just about everything, anything and everything. I'm not going to uh, leave anybody out by just listing a few things. Why is this an age of doubt? Why is there so much doubt about science these days? Yeah, this is such a complex issue. We do see uh, trust in science is overall very high. The latest Pew Research poll says that uh, 57% of all Americans believe that scientists have the best interests in the nation at heart. And, and that is overall good thing for our nation to have science and scientists and scientific research. Uh, that's down, though, from a high of almost 80% just a few years ago, right before the pandemic. We are seeing this slow decline in the overall trust that Americans have in science and scientists. And I believe that this erosion of trust has several factors behind it. And one of those factors is the way that scientists themselves approach the public. I believe that scientists are not communicating directly with the public enough. They are not making their research accessible and understandable. I believe that some scientists are getting caught up in um, in corruption, in fraud. Mm. I believe they are publishing too much and too often, and they're, we're getting sloppy, and we're not self-correcting and checking ourselves often enough, and that some scientists are getting duped. Uh, getting paid off, getting bought off, getting um, 
getting encouraged to support a certain political positions, even when it extends beyond the bounds of what their evidence says. Uh, we have examples of all of this. And I believe in science. I believe in the power and vitality of the scientific method to illuminate the world around us and as a tool, as an aid for answering pressing social questions and civilization-wide questions. And yet, this power and vitality and usefulness doesn't get communicated to the public nearly enough. And so the public, many members of the public, will enjoy science, like learning about science, like hearing about new results. But when science touches on something that they personally believe in or have a stake in, then it becomes much harder to navigate. And that's where the erosion of trust uh, begins. And I believe that scientists aren't doing a good enough job in addressing that and in bridging that gap. Talking with Dr. Uh, Paul Sutter. So now that we know the problem, now that we know the factors that have led to this age of doubt, which I think you've uh, illustrated very very comprehensively, how do we restore trust? How do we rescue science? Yeah, I think it's up to the scientists. We can't put it on the public to build the bridges back to science that that were once there, um, because that's unfair. (laughs) It's not their fault. Um, I believe it's the fault of scientists for not handling their relationship with the public very well. And so uh, this book is a call to scientists, to engineers, to STEM majors, to fans of science, to start sharing more, to start communicating more, to start reaching out to the public, not with the expectation of changing minds or convincing people or mocking uh, people who don't believe uh, various aspects of scientific research. It's about talking. It's about sharing. It's about exposing our love and joy and curiosity and wonder, you know, the fundamental human emotions that power scientists every day. It is these emotions that everybody can share in. We can all share in the delight and joy of scientific discovery. I, you know, I don't want to uh, get you to weigh in on anything that's a, a, a politically volatile issue because the work that you do is uh, nonpartisan and I think whatever, whatever people's political party, they should enjoy it. But um, just this week, you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who very famously during the pandemic said that he was science. He basically told congressional lawmakers that the guidelines that he told the public about to keep six feet of separation ostensibly to limit the spread of COVID sort of just appeared without scientific input, without commenting necessarily on Fauci specifically. Is that the kind of thing that scientists and respected scientists are doing that is undermining trust in science? Yeah, I actually um, believe like uh, Anthony Fauci, he played a very important role in the pandemic. Uh, He was in a a leadership position within our government. Uh, It was his role to advise um, our, our political leaders. Ultimately, though, I believe the best role of scientists is as an illuminator of the evidence. And it's our job as scientists to communicate what we find in scientific research to the public, making it understandable to the general public, to policymakers, to political leaders, so that we can come to a consensus decision together. That is a very vital 
important role, especially when we have things like global pandemics mm-hmm. that are killing all of our grandparents and we're freaking out justifiably trying to figure out how do we stop this thing? And then we turn to the experts in our communities saying, well, what do we do? And science as an institution actually has a very hard time dealing with rapid fire, real time crisis situations because science by its very nature, is slow and deliberate and argumentative. And we come to different conclusions at different times, and we weigh the evidence, and we have slim pieces of of research here and there that poke and prod at a problem. Then over time, through journal articles and conferences and a, a whole lot of emails, we come to an understanding of some situation in nature. And so the public, I believe, isn't used to that side of science. We like to see scientists as authoritative because what we say is supposed to be based on the evidence. But when we're gathering that evidence in real time and we're trying to understand a very complex, evolving situation like a virus that is spreading like wildfire, that is a very hard position for science to Mm -hmm. be in. And so I think the best thing to do is to be upfront about it, to say those words that I said at the beginning of the episode of of this interview, to say, I don't know, to say, hey, scientists, what do we do about this? It's okay for a scientist to say, I don't know. Let me go back to my research community. Let's talk amongst our colleagues. We're going to give some advice. We're going to give some guidance. It's going to be based on the evidence. But, hey, that evidence is going to change. We're going to have to update as things go because the more we learn, the more we might change our minds. We might shift direction. And that's okay. Let me ask you about uh, AI. There's been a lot talked about with respect to AI. Depending on who you ask, AI is a complete game changer when it comes to everything from space exploration to medical diagnostic tests, or AI is going to bring about the inevitable end of human civilization, and it's just a matter of time before we see a Terminator 2-style judgment day. Where do you come down on the AI issue? Greatest thing to ever happen to civilization or the worst? Um, I'd love to answer that question, but you're actually uh, roboting out and the call quality has dropped really uh, precipitously. Uh, can you, can you, I think the AI overlords are trying to intervene so that they don't get this information out. <laughs> uh, fair enough. That's the, uh, the, uh, the scientific equivalent of pleading the fifth, I suppose. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll give you a break on that one. Um, so, but honestly, when it comes to AI, you don't have a, you don't have a take that, um, that, that keeps you. Uh, oh, of course I have a take. Everyone has a take. My, if, if you're asking if AI uh, is angels or demons, my answer is AI is mundane. I think it is not going to be the savior of humanity, and it is not going to usher in an age of wonders. I also don't think that AI is going to learn how to build laser ray guns and start murdering all the humans. Uh, AI is a tool. It's a very complex and nuanced tool. It's a tool we honestly barely understand. Uh, We don't even understand our own human consciousness, and so imbuing an art uh, you know, a digital circuitry and software with consciousness seems like a pretty tall order, considering we don't even understand the fundamental concepts in the first place. And yet, 
the AI tools that we are developing do seem to have their uses, do seem to have their applications. We will explore as a society what those applications are. We will find the acceptable boundaries of those, of those applications. Whether AI gets substantially more powerful in the future than it is today, Probably, but maybe not. There's no guarantee of technological progression. You know, the airplanes we have today are certainly more advanced than the airplanes of 100 years ago, but not exponentially better than the airplanes of 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the AI 100 years from now may be much, much better than the AI today, but not necessarily amazingly better. You mentioned the James Webb uh, Space Telescope and the things that, you know, caused that project to be delayed. We've seen some pretty incredible images from the James Webb Space Telescope since it's been out there. In your view, what is the most impressive thing we've seen from James Webb or the most impressive thing we've learned from James Webb, to put it more broadly? Right. I'm going to put my biases out front uh, so I can qualify this answer appropriately. I'm a theoretical cosmologist. I like to study the history and evolution of the universe itself, the story of the Big Bang written in the arrangement of galaxies in our universe. And so to me personally, the most interesting results from the James Webb are the results concerning cosmology. Uh, If you had an an exobiologist or an exoplanet hunter on this show, I'm sure they would say the exoplanet discoveries that the James Webb has made. Uh, But for me, it's all about the early universe and what the James Webb is revealing and the problems it's revealing. We've been, we've suspected for quite some time that our understanding of the very early universe, and by very early, I mean the first few hundred million years. This is the dawn of the first stars, the emergence of the first galaxies, and so on. We've known that our understanding of this has been limited uh, and flawed and probably broken. And the James Webb is showing very clearly that we simply do not understand how the first stars and galaxies and black holes emerged on the cosmic scene. And that's very exciting to me because that's an opportunity to learn something new. Mm. Do, do you buy the Big Bang Theory? Oh, I, I don't I don't just buy it. I sell it. Mm. Um, there are a lot of big bang skeptics out there you're aware and not just people that are uh, science uh, skeptics in general there are a lot of people in the scientific community that have a difficult time um buying that the the big bang theory exists that this uh this that describes how the universe expanded from an initial state of high density and temperature to what we have now what do you say to the big bang skeptics Oh, yeah. So I I will address the vast majority of scientists, especially physicists, especially astronomers, especially cosmologists, um, do believe, based on the evidence, that the Big Bang story is largely true. And the Big Bang story is very simple, which is a long time ago, our universe was smaller and hotter and denser. Since then, it, it has expanded and cooled and thinned out. Voila. That's the Big Bang story. And... To anyone who doesn't believe the Big Bang story, fine. Uh, you know, no theory is forced upon anybody. What we do have is a, is a collection of evidence. We have independent, multiple independent lines of evidence. And if you want to come up 
with your own theory of the history of the universe, great. No one's stopping you. Do it. But if you're going to play the game, you have to follow the rules. And the rules are that you have to agree with observation, that you have to agree with evidence. And so if you can come up with a compelling theory of the history of the universe that agrees with all pieces of evidence, and I mean all of them, you can't leave any any out, that's cheating. If you come up with that theory that agrees with all pieces of evidence and has proposals for how we can distinguish this new theory versus the Big Bang and tell them apart observationally, empirically, and do the whole science thing, then then bring it on. Let's see you at the next conference. Let's read your paper. I'll be applauding when you get your Nobel Prize. No one's stopping you. If people are just... The truth is, yeah. I was just going to remind folks, uh, we're talking with Paul Sutter. Uh, You could check out his uh, forthcoming book, uh, Rescuing Science, Restoring Trust in an Age of Doubt. It's available for pre-order. You can go to pmsutter.com. Also available for pre-order in places like Amazon. Paul, almost out of time. Two final questions I want to ask you before we uh, before we let you go. One, uh, you're uh, as professional a spaceman as, we, as we've spoken to in quite some time, at least in the scientific realm. In your opinion, what is the most realistic movie about space? <laughs> the most realistic movie I've watched about space has to be The Martian. The Martian. Okay, I like it. I like yeah, it with that's, Ma- that's Matt Damon. That's a good one. All right. Um, this may, might sound a little odd, but I'm betting you have a good answer to this because people in every field, law enforcement, uh, crime, uh, the legal profession, radio, you name it, they all have jokes about their profession. Can you share a cosmic joke that always gets a laugh during your scientific communications endeavors? And obviously bonus points if it involves a black hole or a knock-knock joke. All right. It won't be a knock-knock joke. It won't be. But thank you for giving me the opportunity to share this wonderful pun. People often confuse my field cosmology with cosmetology. Uh, But I simply tell them that cosmology is studying the makeup of the universe. (laughs) Okay, I like it. Whereas cosmetology is simply studying makeup. Makes sense to me. Uh, uh, Dr. Paul Sutter, if you like more of what you, uh, if you want to hear more of what you heard today, you could check out the Ask a Spaceman podcast. You could also just go to pmsutter.com. Dr. Sutter, I enjoyed this very much. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. Only you can do make all this well seem right. Only you can do make the dark. 
The Platters singing Only You. This was the one song uh, that my Aunt Camille requested on uh, her birthday. And today is her birthday. She's at an age that, you know, I think she'd prefer me not mention. But this was the only song she uh, she, she would think to mention. And uh, she said this was uh, not only a favorite of hers, but of my Uncle Carmine's. And I asked her, and, you know, uh, she's at an age where, you know, I'm not sure if everything she's saying is 100% accurate, but... I asked her what her wedding song was when she married my Uncle Carmine, and she said it was this song. She said it was Only You. Not sure if that's true, but for the purposes of this discussion, we'll say it is. Happy birthday, Aunt Camille. I'm looking forward to seeing you later. All right. Um, 800-848-9222. We will uh, comment. I will get your comments in just a bit. But a couple of people have asked me... um, about my football picks for this week because I won my football pool for the weekend and some, excuse me, for the whole season. And some folks are saying, well, if, you know, maybe I'll have that same luck for the playoffs. I, um, so let me give you, there's only a few games this weekend, so I'll, I can give you my, uh, my football picks very quickly. Um, so, Cleveland is playing Houston. Cleveland is favored by two and a half. I asked Kilmeade about this yesterday. I don't have a strong view of this game either way. I've been to Cleveland. I've not been to Houston. Kilmeade said to pick Cleveland. So my wife, who's a little under the weather, she has a, a bad cold, not COVID though. And she, she was in my office because she just couldn't, she needed a break from work for a few minutes. And I asked her, who do you, who do you like, Cleveland or Houston? She instantly said, Houston. So I'm picking Houston for no other reason than if um, if she's wrong and I lose the playoffs because of her pick, I can blame her for that one. I'm going with Kansas City. They're favored by three and a half points over Miami. Uh, that's the game that's on Peacock. I'm going with Kansas City because obviously um, the football gods would never allow Taylor Swift's new favorite team to lose. Buffalo is heavily favored by ten and a half points over Pittsburgh. The only way that Buffalo loses this game is if every single member of the team between now and Sunday gets afflicted with leprosy. I mean, it's just, it's not going to happen. Are they going to score more than 10.5 points over Pittsburgh? I think so. Uh, But I always would take Buffalo anyway because they're New York's only real football team. I am a New Yorker. Uh, Dallas is heavily favored over Green Bay. 7.5 points. I'm going with Green Bay. I still think Dallas is going to win. But I'm going with Green Bay to, you know, come within that seven and a half point spread because of that Happy Days episode where Ralph develops a gambling problem. And that word, and again, I haven't seen this episode in 33 years, but that words, the words that he keeps saying in that episode, Green Bay can't lose. I just have that reverberating in my head. Green Bay can't lose. So I am uh, taking Green Bay there. Uh, Detroit is playing the Rams, going with Detroit. They're favored by three and a half because of our great affiliate there, AM 910, the Superstation, WFDF. Uh, The Monday night game, Philadelphia is favored three and a half points over Tampa Bay. I'm going with Tampa Bay because my friend Michael Levy is a big Tampa Bay fan, as are my neighbors Nick and Tara. So it'll be a much more jovial block if Tampa Bay wins instead of Philadelphia. So I'm going with them so I could root with them. And then when there's a tie, when multiple players tie, and in a pool with uh, 20-something players, you it, there's often a tie when there's only one, two, three, four, uh, two, five, six games. 
um, it goes to the points, and you have to pick co- whoever comes closest to the points on the Monday night game. I'm picking that the cumulative score of Monday night game will be 42 points. So there you have it. I'm picking Houston, Kansas City, Buffalo, Green Bay, Detroit, Tampa Bay, and 42 points to tie. All right. 800-848-9222. Steve is in Jersey City. Hi, Steve. Good morning. Oh, good morning. Uh, I'd like to comment on that guy, Paul Maybelline, the cosmetologist. Uh, Paul uh, um, Sutter, but go ahead. Yeah, well, Maybelline Sutter, cosmetology. Oh, oh, I get it. It was a joke. Okay. Right, right, right. Come on, it was subtle, man. Very subtle. Okay, here we go. Um, he made the comment that we have lots of evidence, yet he didn't give us a single example of evidence. And no matter how much evidence there is, there's one. There's one big problem. Nobody was around 17 billion years right. ago, so they could say he could say whatever he wants. Oh, this is the evidence. Well, how's that evidence? It's just you're just saying it is. Um, Here's another problem with science. And like I said, I'm not, I'm not an anti-science guy at all. There's a rule in science. Something cannot come from nothing. Big rule in science. Yet, we came from nothing. So science basically contradicts itself. Mm, that's all I have to say. All right. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, go Can ahead. Can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. Why does um, um, Curtis always call you a Mama Luke? I don't know, because he likes to bust chops. Oh, okay. I think it's kind of funny, but I'm like, why? I mean, you know, you're a pretty bright guy. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that, uh, Steve. You know, um, yeah, whatever. I'm not bothered by any names anybody has for them, uh, for me, as long as they keep listening. All right, we got denunciations after the top of the hour, and I just got word that we may have a surprise guest stopping by next hour. I don't know if that's going to happen. I'm hoping it does. It's a good one. Until next hour, your influence counts. Use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm superstar Frank Moreno, and I've got a lot of problems with you people. This is our weekly excursion into the world of the negative. I've got a lot to get off my chest, although I will tell you, someone that is not going to be on the receiving end of what you're about to hear is Elias. Not only did Elias do a stellar job um, producing a stellar segment with that uh, opening that he did for that Dr. Sky hour the other day, but... Not only are the articles that I'm about to refer to printed, which is nice, not only are they stapled, but they're numbered. I mean, this guy is way too competent to be working on this show. This is this is something. I am blown away. But uh, I hope to blow you away with my commentary about the evils of the people who have fallen on this week's list of... The Other Side of Midnight presents Denunciation. I must denounce ESPN. ESPN, I don't know where these guys get off. They used fake names to secure Emmys for college game day stars. 
In March 2023, Shelly Smith, who worked 26 years as an on-air reporter for ESPN, received a call from Stephanie Drooley, then the network's head of studio and event production. Drooley said she wanted to talk about something serious that needed to stay between the two of them. She then told Smith that Smith needed to return two Sports Emmys statuettes that she had given she had been given more than a decade earlier. That request was one of many ESPN made of some of its biggest stars last year after the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, the organizations that administers the Emmys and the Oscars, uncovered a scheme that the network used to acquire more than 30 of these coveted statuettes for on-air talent ineligible to receive them. Since at least 2010, ESPN inserted fake names in Emmy entries, then took the awards won by some of those imaginary individuals and had them re-engraved and gave them to on-air personalities. This is crazy. Okay, this is pathological. Did they think no one was going to notice? Well, I guess they were right. Because for a while, no one did notice. This is insane. Shame on ESPN entering awards with fake names and then taking the awards and re-engraving them? Well, come to think of it, is there any way we could do that? All right. From now on, let's try and find some radio awards that we're not eligible for. Enter them with fake names and then get them re-engraved. I think that would be nice. Uh, But until then... ESPN, I do denounce you. I must also denounce Miguel Almaguar, the NBC News reporter who was suspended over the retracted story about an assault on Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, that helped spur all these conspiracy theories about the attack. attack. He's now leaving the network. This is a guy that was a correspondent for NBC's Today Show whose story had claimed that Paul Pelosi was not in danger when San Francisco police arrived at his home in response to a distress call in November of 2022. He announced on Instagram that he's no longer employed by the Peacock Network. So an NBC investigation revealed that Al McGuire relied on sourcing that was unreliable. And, you know, this proved very problematic because... Within almost instantly, you had people, including on some of the stations that I'm on, concocting these crazy Paul Pelosi conspiracy theories. And it all stems from this guy, Miguel Almaguar. And it goes to show you there is a cost to bad reporting. And this guy's a bad reporter. I am not sorry to see him go. I don't like to see anybody lose their job. But Miguel Almaguar, I do denounce you. And let this be a lesson to every other journalist's. Use credible sources. Use credible sources. I must announce the BBC, speaking of sources, the BBC apologized for a Christmas Eve report containing an unverified Hamas claim that Israelis were committing summary executions or executions based on guilt without a fair trial on Palestinian civilians in Gaza. The apology posted on the outlet's um, corrections page said, In overnight output, we ran a story about Hamas accusing the Israeli army of carrying out summary executions in the Gaza Strip. 
This was a Hamas statement, but although the accusations were attributed and our story contained a response from the Israeli military saying they were unaware of the incident and that Hamas was a terrorist organization that didn't value truth, we had not made sufficient effort to seek corroborating evidence to justify reporting Hamas's claim. We apologize for that mistake. So this is a dual denunciation. One, Look, I'm all for critical reporting of everything Israel's doing, of everything every country is doing. But... You can't simply rebroadcast the things that Hamas says. Hamas is a terrorist organization. I mean, you saw the things they were claiming about the attack on the hospital that turned out not to be true. And it's not to say that the IDF hasn't also said things that aren't true. But you can't just simply rebroadcast without any independent verification the things that Hamas has said. But then their apology was so lame for them to say... Well, you know, we did include a statement from the Israelis that said it wasn't true, but we're we're sorry anyway, I guess. This is the lamest apology, uh, again, for very poor journalism that I've seen in quite some time. BBC, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the protesters in Los Angeles that vandalized and defaced the Los Angeles National Cemetery, where nearly 90,000 veterans who served the country from World War I through Vietnam are buried. And you see these, this video posted online. I, I honestly just find it sickening. Showing a demonstrator spray painting Free Gaza with an upside-down red triangle on the entrance to the National Cemetery as a protest to shut down a major boulevard outside the U.S. Federal Building. And then you see these demonstrators wearing traditional Palestinian garb, waving Palestinian flags, holding signs accusing President Biden of being an enabler of genocide and of Zionists of being Nazis. Um, But to actually go so far as to vandalize a veteran cemetery, I don't care what people are chanting, but to vandalize a veteran cemetery like this I think it's really beneath contempt. It's it's horrific, to be honest. I think it's evil, honestly. So for all of the vandals that took part in this vandalism, I do denounce you. I must also denounce two members of the media who were heard cracking jokes over a hot mic on Tuesday about former President Trump being cut down by an assassin's bullet as they waited for him to appear at the federal courthouse in Washington. The unidentified male journalists had their news cameras stationed outside the courthouse when they started to grouse about the difficulties of getting a view of the former president. Quote, You know what the worst part is? Even if he has his window open and he's hanging out of it, he will be on the other side of the street. I mean, if he's driving, we've got a good shot. Uh, To which the first replied, yeah, if he's driving with the front window open. The conversation then swerved into gallows humor about the former president arriving in an open top car like President Kennedy was riding in Dallas in November of 1963. Yeah, or if it's a convertible. Yeah, I wasn't thinking about that. Yeah, like if he just pulls up like JFK, maybe someone... Just like they told JFK, you know what you should do? You should take a convertible. It's so nice out. And they're yucking it up. I mean, 
I don't know who should be more insulted. The family members of John F. Kennedy or Donald Trump? Because it's incredibly insulting to both of them to be joking about the assassination of a past president and the possible assassination of a former and potentially future president. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, look, I, I didn't vote for you know, President Biden, for instance, or a lot of other different presidents. I would never joke about one of them being assassinated. Never. Not in a thousand years. So I, I think it's reprehensible that these people would think this is funny. So to these journalists or anyone else that would joke about assassinating a president, I do denounce you. I must also denounce bottled plastic water bottles. Well, I guess all plastic water bottles are bottled. Researchers from Columbia University and Rutgers University found roughly, are you ready for this, 240,000 detectable plastic fragments in a typical liter of bottled water. You know, we talked earlier in the week about what a good commercial it was for the iPhone that it survived falling out of that airplane. This is the best commercial for tap water that there is because microplastic pieces of plastic, microscopic pieces of plastic are everywhere. And now they've been found in bottled water in concentrations 10 to 100 times more than previously estimated. Now, we don't know what the story is in terms of what consuming all this plastic means. But I'll tell you this. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say it's not good for you. Not good for you at all. So... Um, I'm going to make an effort to actually try and drink less bottled water. I don't want to be drinking all this plastic. And uh, I, I want to denounce the Old West Long Branch Cemetery, the um, Mount, the uh, funeral home, uh, actually, for this that services this cemetery. The Manalapan-based, Manalapan, New Jersey-based Bloomfield Cooper Jewish Chapel, uh, uh, Chapel, because as about sixty of Janet Kay's loved ones gathered at a cemetery in Marlboro for the eighty-two-year-old Lakewood woman's burial, it became apparent that something was terribly wrong. First, there was a prolonged delay. Then the funeral director started asking the 85-year-old widower questions that indicated the body of his late wife had been lost. Then um, it turned out the woman about to be buried in Kay's grave was not Kay, but was wearing Kay's clothing, jewelry, and wedding ring. Can you imagine? You're probably beside yourself with grief. Your wife of many decades has died. All your friends and family are around to see her be buried. And you learn not only have they lost her body, but they have put your widow, your wife's clothes and wedding ring on another body, the corpse of a stranger. I don't know about you, but I will not be using... Bloomfield Cooper Jewish Chapels as my funeral home anytime soon. Uh, Bloomfield Cooper, I do denounce you. I must also denounce Daniel John Voltaire, a 56-year-old man 
who has been arrested for stalking the singer Shakira at her Miami Beach home. Detectives met with Shakira's security director who provided them with multiple recordings and several social media posts from this gentleman, which showed how he was married and wanted to open a business alongside the singer. And apparently this guy is, look, I mean, he's clearly dealing with some issues related to mental illness, but he's sending packages to her home, which include bottles of wine, chocolates, toys. Come to think of it, maybe I need a stalker. Um, But Shakira told the detective she didn't know this person that was claiming to be married to her. And she expressed concern over how he got a hold of her personal information, her address, the names of her family members. And uh, they found that this gentleman was post saying he was coming to Florida to Shakira's home. Now, that's frightening. Frightening. So I hope this man gets the psychological help that he needs. But until then, Mr. Valtier, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the New York City Museum of Sex. You know, I've, hist- I've had a history with the Museum of Sex. They've done a few things over the years that have ticked me off. This is the latest. They've been forced to apologize to Madonna after falsely claiming she ignored the AIDS crisis in the 1980s. Now, why is Madonna being mentioned in an exhibit on the AIDS crisis to begin with? But they went out of their way to embarrass her. So they have an exhibit on the 1980s music videos. And in that exhibit, the museum wrote that Madonna, along with other mainstream musicians, had failed to openly acknowledge the devastation of the moment. Now, the problem with that is completely untrue. Fans and AIDS activists, they leapt to Madonna's defense. They shared newspaper clippings, interviews that she did at the time, album art that showed her early campaigning. And the museum was forced to apologize. The AIDS Memorial Twitter account called on the museum to get your facts right. What value does this museum have if they can't even accurately depict history? Beats me. All right. uh, And finally, I want to denounce the gunman who broke into this television station in Ecuador. This is a frightening thing, and Ecuador looks to be a total mess. You have the military at war with a bunch of criminal gangs. Then you have a bunch of vigilante gangs that are acting as the good guys. The president is cheering them on. It's crazy over there. It's, it's abs- You're going to hear a lot about Ecuador all of next week and p- potentially in the foreseeable future because it's nuts. It, as uh, Bob would say, Ecuador is sick and getting sicker. But you have these masked gunmen break into this public television channel during a live studio broadcast, forcing the staff to the floor. Police made 13 arrests following the attack, which injured two employees. At least 10 people have been killed since a 60-day state of emergency began in Ecuador on Monday. The emergency was declared after a notorious gangster vanished. From his prison cell, it's unclear whether the incident at the TV studio was related to the disappearance or if it was something else. So if you're going to break into a TV studio during a live broadcast with and hurt people and carry guns, I do denounce you. I mean, the only thing worse than that, if someone were to do it at a radio station. All right. uh, That is this week's 
denunciations. If you have comments on anyone that I have denounced, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Coming up, we may take your calls, or we may go live to the Middle East, or we may have a special surprise guest live in studio. I'm not sure which of those three things is going to happen, but take your chances. I mean, odds are pretty good. One out of three. Better than you have at the craps table. If you want to call in, you have a good chance of getting hurt. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. After the hour, this is not only a uh, a terrific song, uh, but the person singing it, uh, Buster Poindexter, better uh, better known, well, as he's better known, also known as David Johansson. It was his birthday this week, and I had it on my list of songs to play earlier in the week, but specifically requested by my cousin Liz on behalf of her mother, my Aunt Camille, who is celebrating her birthday today. So happy birthday, Aunt Camille. Happy birthday to... My, uh, you know, to Buster Poindexter, who I've never met. I'm a big fan of Buster Poindexter or David Johansson, not just as a, a singer, but a great actor. He's in uh, he's the ghost of Christmas past in Scrooge. Phenomenal in that role. And there's a, a film that a lot of people don't know about uh, that my Uncle Carmine actually turned me on to called Let It Ride. I think this is one of the great gambling movies of all time. And again, I wouldn't know where to tell you how to get it now because Netflix has stopped the DVD shipping. This was one of many titles that was available on Netflix through the DVDs, but it's not available on streaming, at least not for free. But it's a great little picture. It's from the 80s. You got Richard Dreyfuss, David Johansson, uh, and Terry Garr. Wonderful cast. You know, it's kind of a silly plot, but it's fun. And it's a film that every gambler can relate to. So if you have, if you've been a gambler, whether you like poker, whether you like casinos, whether you like uh, the horses, especially, that's a great film to check out. Let it ride. And my uncle Carmine was a big uh, horse player back in the day. All right, eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Robert in Manhattan, what's on your mind? Good morning, Frank. Now, because you, because you're an avid trekkie. It's, there's always been a question in my mind. If Frank Morano were lucky enough to 
attain entrance into Starfleet Academy, what would be three courses that you would like to take? I'll tell you my three favorite, and then I'd like to hear some of yours what you might. The first one I would want to take is temporal mechanics. I find that absolutely fascinating, as Catherine Janeway once said about temporal mechanics, because I believe that was a course that she took. Oh, by the way, you know, we were talking about uh, Saturday morning shows, and I forgot one of the people who was in um, Gargoyles was Kate Mulgrew. Oh, I didn't realize that. Titania the Fairy Queen. What a Mm. marvelous role. Okay, so temporal mechanics would be my first. Because of my interest in history, I would want to take interstellar diplomacy. And because of my professionalism as a folklorist and an accredited folklorist with a Ph.D. degree, I would want to take intergalactic mythology. What would be your favorite course? Well, that's interesting. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, and I hadn't thought about it. I, I kind of just like Star Trek as a television show. But I, I would, um, you know, I had diplomacy on my list, too. I think maybe um, something in anthropology, because I think uh, when you're dealing with a Ooh, lot of alien yes. civilizations, anthropology wow, could yes. be a pretty interesting um, course. And then... Um, you know, look, I think maybe uh, something that could be very relatable to folks in the 21st century, as well as the 23rd or the 24th, maybe something like, um, you know, like counseling, which I think there's no shortage of need for both in um, the, the 24th century and this one. So I guess those are my three. Although, I, I look, I think history is always something that's been of interest to me, so I would have no issue taking a history course as well. Uh, if you want to follow us on Facebook, please be so good as to do so. Go to facebook.com slash MoranoFan, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. But if you want to participate in a dialogue about what we're covering on the show, join our Facebook group. Just search um, Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook, M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. Post whatever you want, even if it's critical, about the show about the show. It's not meant to be a general news discussion group. It's meant to be a discussion group about the show. So that's what we would like. All right. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Suffolk. What's on your mind, Robert? Hey, Frank. Um, well, comment and then question. Sure. All right. That's despicable what the FBI did to that kid. Knowing that he has a mental disease or defect. Yeah, I would would agree with you. I would agree with you, Robert. Yeah, it's illegal. Now, uh, the question that I had. Can Congress issue a writ of mandamus, which is a mandate ordering that that, Merrick Garland arrest Hunter Biden for contempt of Congress and have him jailed? Well... You know, it's a good question because Congress can issue a writ of uh, mandamus that compels government officials uh, to act. In 1962, Congress gave all federal district courts the power to issue writs as well. Um, But I think I don't know what would then happen if uh, Merrick Garland didn't act on that. I mean, we've seen that before in American history. You go back to uh, Andrew Jackson when the Supreme Court came up with uh, an order that he didn't agree with. Um, You know, basically, uh, Andrew Jackson said, the Chief Justice has come up with his order, now let him enforce it. You don't even have to go back to the 19th century. If you look at, during the Obama administration, Eric Holder was held in contempt of Congress, and the Justice Department certainly did not handle that 
that the same way that they're handling Peter Navarro being held in contempt of Congress. So I'm not sure logistically and on a practical level what would happen if uh, they simply, if um, you know, Merrick Garland chose to ignore the writ. It's a great question, uh, but it's one that I don't have an answer for, honestly, Robert. Well, maybe then Garland himself, if he refuses to uphold and enforce the law like he's supposed to, be arrested for contempt of court and jail. Well, uh, right, contempt of, of Congress, right. Well, yeah, again, though, but you saw the contempt of Congress um, situation with Eric Holder and nothing happened to him, right? So, by the way, uh, speaking of Peter Navarro, I think he's actually going to be sentenced on Friday, I believe. It's coming up. If it's not Friday, I think it's one another day uh, next week. So we'll uh, we'll make sure to bring that to you. Hey, um, one of the things that I do is we have this email list. So if you ever email me, I'll add you to my email list. Uh, 800-848-9... Uh, excuse me. Frank.Morano at um, redappleaudionetworks.com. That's Frank.Morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. But the way that I get those emails out, I pay a lot of money to a service to get those emails out called Constant Contact. And I got a message from Constant Contact just yesterday saying that Google and Yahoo are implementing new guidelines for bulk email senders as of February 1st to protect against spam and improve deliverability. So those these changes are going to affect anybody like me who's sending bulk or marketing emails. So if the best thing that you can do is add me to your approved sender list if you still want to make sure to get those emails. And if you find one of my old emails, mark specifically as not spam because uh, that's the best way to make sure that you will you know, continue to get those emails. I'm going to work with our email service provider to see what can be done to make sure I bypass that. But if you have Gmail or Yahoo, they're trying to make it more difficult for my emails to reach you. So do make sure that you uh, do whatever you can to, you know, get those, uh, mark me as not spam. Unless you do think I'm spam, in which case, then by all means, do your thing. All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment, 800-848-9222. Oh, uh, there was an interesting story about um, Ryan Graves. You remember Ryan Graves? He was one of these UFO whistleblowers who um, testified before Congress. This man was a pretty experienced naval pilot, and... Basically, Graves says dozens of pilots have witnessed UAPs and there's really not a safe space to retort. So now there was this new bipartisan bill in Congress that was introduced yesterday that looks to encourage commercial pilots to report sightings of unidentified aerial phenomena, UAPs, or unidentified flying objects to the United States government. So this is an effort that's being led by uh, Democrat Robert Garcia of California uh, and Republican Glenn Grothman of Wisconsin, and it aims to promote safe airspace for Americans by encouraging pilots to report any potential sightings to the government. It would also require the FAA to relay all reports to the Department of Defense All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, ARO. 
The bill will also set up legal safeguards for all pilots who make these reports to the federal government. Ryan Graves was on News Nation talking about this. Right now, uh, military witnesses to UAP have limited options for reporting UAP. The military and Department of Defense has stated that UAP represent uh, a critical aviation safety risk. Uh, we have not seen that, that, same, um, that same language being used in the commercial markets. They are not acknowledging this risk. You know, that's actually not from uh, News Nation. That's from his testimony before Congress last summer. But the point is still the same. There's this whole organization that uh, Ryan Graves was a co-founder of. It's called Americans for Safe Aerospace. I'm going to reach out to Ryan Graves, see if he wants to come on this show. And basically, um, he has said that right now pilots are trained observers of our skies, but he has heard from dozens of frustrated pilots from major airlines who have witnessed UAP, yet had no confidential way to report them to the government. So if passed, this bill is going to enable civilian air crew, the FAA, air traffic controllers, flight attendants, maintenance workers, anybody that has anything to do with airplanes, basically, to report UAP encounters. So these reports will allow the FAA and the Department of Defense to investigate potential threats to the nation's airspace. Look, whatever you think these things are, I think this is uh, certainly a positive, right? This is exactly what we want. We want people coming forward, and we want people describing what they're seeing. Not pretending it didn't happen or feeling like they can't, you know, come forward with this kind of a thing. All right, 800-848-9222. We're going to get to your calls in a moment. Uh, Lastly, on the UFO front or the UAP front or the ET front, whatever, uh, there's an article, there's several articles actually, describing this these 10-foot-tall strange beings being seen as traversing a Brazilian island as rumors are swirling about aliens. There's this new video, and I'm going to link to it right now on my uh, on my Facebook page if you want to check it out, uh, facebook.com slash moranofan. It does look interesting, uh, and you could check it out and judge for yourself, though, where you have these... These new, this new video of these two giant human-like creatures strolling along the foothills of this small Brazilian island in what some people believe is nothing short of proof that there might be something already here, right? And if you look at the video, and again, check it out and judge for yourself, these two beings stand confidently on top of the hill, which locals say is very difficult to reach, but with the shrubbery barely reaching their knees. The pair could be seen swinging their arms in an early human-like manner, but not enough to convince some eyewitnesses that they weren't watching uh, watching aliens. One person, through a translation, says it's too big to be a person. Um, look at the way he moves. It's really weird. Look at the size of those pasts. It's very fast. Now, again, I want to be clear. I have no idea what this is at all. Absolutely none. But it does look like something. The video generated even more traction 
once it made its way onto social media, which had blown up just days after Floridians claimed that uh, 10-foot-tall aliens had been strolling through a Miami mall. So some folks are wondering, are these the same types of entities that were seen in Florida? I have no idea. Uh, Other more skeptical users threw in their two cents, claiming the creepy video was likely just a result of forced perspective. Even the Brazilian government, though, joined in on the fun, though they notably did not confirm whether the giants were tourists from another country or another planet. The state government of Piranha in Brazil wrote on Twitter, Sure, what happened on Ila Domi? Uh, And even strange beings. Great summer at Piranha is another story, and even strange beings came to check it out. So everybody's having some fun with it, but honestly, we have no idea what it is. All right. 800-848-9222. Alan is in Beantown, B-Town, Boston. What's going on, Alan? Hi. Good morning, Frank. How are you? Well, I am uh, I'm great. Thank you for asking. Well, that's uh, that's uh, very good. Uh, uh, before uh, I get to the uh, topic at hand, I was uh, not completely surprised, but a little surprised uh, to uh, hear you uh, mention that uh, you've never uh, visited us. Uh, you've never visited us up here in Boston. Is that correct? I've never been to Boston. That is true. Okay. Well, we we do have a uh, we do have a casino. It's called Encore, very close to the airport. And uh, I would uh, love to uh, send you an email uh, maybe this weekend, and uh, if uh, you wanted to come up, uh, um, you know, possibly uh, Encore. And uh, I assume uh, you've uh, heard of Fenway Park and uh, where the uh, uh, a baseball team that resides here plays once or uh, twice. Yeah, once or twice. Well, I mean, if I could twist your arm. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, the the topic at hand. Uh, I uh, did have the pleasure of meeting the uh, lead singer of the New York Dolls, uh, uh, Buster Poindexter, David Johansson, uh, back in uh, 1982, I believe. Uh, there was a uh, legendary uh, radio. A uh, program director named Sonny Joe White, uh, who uh, programmed a uh, very uh, popular FM station up here in Boston that uh, is still on the air today. And uh, uh, Sonny Joe brought uh, uh, David in for a uh, AIDS benefit at uh, a large dance hall. And uh, Buster closed the event, and uh, I happened to uh, have been able to uh, be in the uh, circle of people uh, after he finished. And uh, he was... Uh, Spoke to him very briefly, but uh, he was a uh, very, very uh, humble and uh, uh, open and uh, uh, nice gentleman and a great performer. Well, I am not at all surprised to hear that, Alan. I hope I do make it up to Boston one of these days. In fact, my wife and I, she's been to Boston, and uh, we were just watching this movie the other day, The Holdovers, and there's uh, a portion of the movie that takes place in Boston, and I was just mentioning to her again how I've never been, and uh, especially with my fondness for the TV show Cheers, I would definitely love to go. So maybe I'll see you up there, Alan. Thanks. I hope you do. 800-848-9222. Two, two, if you want to be heard. Ron is in Michigan. Hey, Ron. Good morning, Frank. Frank, you're not going to drink from plastic bottles anymore. That's a good idea, but almost all your water in your house comes through plastic piping. If you got Hinkley Schmidt delivered water, it comes in a big plastic bottle. It's like almost impossible to get away from the poison plastic. So, uh, I don't know, just to find a nutritious value to it and uh, 
drink up. That's all I can tell you. So I'm done no matter what. Whether I switch to tap water or I stick with the plastic bottles, I'm just done. We are all done, Frank. Not just you. All of us. Well, that's quite disconcerting, I must say. Thank you. Thank you. All right. 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. And uh, don't look now, but the United States is getting involved in yet another war. I'll give you the latest on that. This is The Other Side of Midnight. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Can't get no satisfaction. Well, if I used double negatives in a sentence, I wouldn't expect any. That's for sure. Uh, Playing this because uh, the Rolling Stones are one of the three favorite rock bands, along with the Beatles and Led Zeppelin, of uh, Howard Stern. Today is Howard Stern's birthday, and today is also Rush Limbaugh's birthday. You know, I've become a greater believer in astrology. I I used to really kind of just completely dismiss it. But my brother-in-law, Josh, who's an astrologer, has uh, led me to think that maybe there's something to this. And I am perpetually impressed and amazed that people who have the same birthday become known for the same things. And they have similar characteristics. And I can't think it's an accident that... Two of the greatest radio talk show hosts of all time, honestly, I think probably the two greatest, Howard Stern and Rush Limbaugh, both have their birthday today. And I know those two guys weren't friends. I don't think they ever met. They, I don't think where they were necessarily fond of one another. But they, I was a fan of both. And their ability to paint pictures with words and understand radio as an entertainment medium not as a political medium, but as an entertainment medium, and as really what it is, which is theater of the mind, is, I think, unparalleled. And uh, I w- always pay tribute to both of them on their birthday, which is today. All right. Um, on, in what I think is sadder news, we're seeing U.S. and allies, mostly the U.K., strike the Houthis in Yemen expanding the war's battleground. I had hoped to uh, chat with Colonel uh, Daniel Davis, 
Uh, but, uh, but right before the show, he he canceled. He wasn't able to stay up at this hour. Hopefully we'll chat with him next week and uh, also some of our other uh, favorite military analysts as well. I'm hoping to get a hold of Colonel Douglas McGregor and uh, some other folks. But the American-led strikes in Yemen uh, have come in response to Houthi attacks against commercial shipping in the Red Sea, raising fears of a deeper regional conflict. Now, do you remember for about a week when we weren't involved in any major wars after the uh, Biden administration pulled out of Afghanistan, there was a very, very short period in which we were not involved in any wars. And that was very short lived because beginning in February of 2022, we became incredibly involved in this war in Ukraine, which is basically a proxy war between the United States and NATO and Russia. We're funding them, we're aiding them, we're giving them uh, really everything except troops on the ground, including weapons, and I have chronicled all the reasons that I think that is bad news. Oh, by the way, uh, do you see the news yesterday with respect to Ukraine? There's a billion dollars that we have sent to Ukraine, which we can't account for. A billion dollars. Oops! What could go wrong? Sending it to one of the most corrupt governments in the world, which Ukraine and the Zelensky government absolutely is, what could go wrong? Billion dollars that no one can account for. I will guarantee you that this has been pilfered. And what they're saying, what this new Pentagon report is saying, and now it's not cash, all of it. A lot of it is weapons, uh, but some of it is cash. But you got cash, shoulder-fired missiles, kamikaze drones, night vision devices, and the totally unaccounted for what the Pentagon says it, it has been poorly tracked officials warned that the high rate of missing weapons and technology had raised concerns that the weapons could have been stolen or smuggled. What could go wrong? The report, which stops short of saying that any weapons have been misused comes at a time when an increasing number of lawmakers in Congress are skeptical about sending more military aid to Ukraine. Gee, I wonder why. So anyway, we're very, very involved in waging the war in Ukraine, which is not working out well for anyone. It's not working out well for the Ukrainians, not working out well for the Russians, uh, except it's not working out well for the United States, certainly not the U.S. taxpayer. Working out very well for the arms manufacturers that have uh, been making all sorts of money and have seen their stock price skyrocket over the course of the last two years. So we're involved in that. Since October 7th, with this Israel-Hamas war, we're very involved in that. We're basically paying for the totality of this Israel-Hamas war. The $12 billion that the United States taxpayer sends to Israel is apparently enough. We had to send them all sorts, not enough, rather. We sent them all sorts of other emergency aid and weapons, not approved by Congress, by the way. Biden just did this on his own. Constitution, Constitution. And we had hoped, and the Biden administration had been telling us, that hopefully this would not expand. Well, clearly it has expanded. Now you have, I think, something like... 50,000 homes, it may be more, in northern Israel of people that have been evacuated because this war has now expanded to Lebanon. Now, Lebanon, while they don't come anywhere near the might of the Israeli military, which is one of the most advanced in the world, Lebanon is not like Gaza and Hamas. 
you know, most of the rockets that come from Gaza are essentially homemade. They don't have targeting devices, and they're they're very lame. They're homemade rockets. If they ever end up hitting a building or a person, it's essentially dumb luck on the part of the person who has fired that rocket, if it, if it gets through. Lebanon, very different. They have hundreds of thousands of rockets with, with, with targeting software, which is one of the reasons these people that are living in northern Israel have had to evacuate. So... This war has expanded in Iraq, which is telling us we don't want you here, United States. We don't want you here after you have uh, presided over the drone attack of the the leader of an Iranian-backed militia group. We don't want you here, and yet we're still there. So we're fighting in Iraq. We're fighting in Ukraine. We're facilitating fighting between the Israel and Gaza and now Israel and Lebanon And you have Iran very much involved here and every aspect of this. And now here comes Yemen. What could go wrong? How about everything? Do you remember a time when, you know, it seems like all these wars start and everybody just claps. They cheer like hyenas. Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Ukraine, you name it. And then eventually everybody realizes this was a mistake. And they say, oh, oh, we're not going to do that again. No more military adventurism. And then we just go down this route again and again. And here we are now with Yemen. Um, So the coalition of the willing that is now doing these strikes in Yemen, in the Houthi-controlled areas, no congressional approval here either, but constitution, constitution. So you have people from Australia helping. Shout out to my brother, Dr. Nicholas Morano, who is uh, listening to us in Australia. Bahrain, Canada, and the Netherlands. There you have that. Uh, President Biden always loves to make it sound like he's leading some grand international coalition. Uh, You know, do you really think the Netherlands played much of a role operationally in this attack? I I suspect not. So anyway, uh, Western officials are saying that the target set that was chosen was towards the higher end, a substantive set of strikes designed to degrade capability and try and restore deterrence. That's what the U.S. is saying, and that's what the U.K. are saying, and they're on a heightened posture and expect the Houthis to increase attacks and attempts to seize uh, ships. So according to the absurd and nonsensical deterrence theory you can launch a barrage of airstrikes on a foreign country that has not attacked you in the name of restoring deterrence even as you simultaneously say you expect the attacks you're supposedly deterring to actually increase so what are we deterring so when you hear these American officials, these UK officials, these military officials using the term deterrence, I mean, it's meaningless. Deterrence has become the word literally, which has lost all coherent meaning. So any claims that the Israel-Gaza war would not draw the United States into a wider regional war in the Middle East have officially been proven false as of yesterday. So instead of using its incredible leverage with both Israel and the Palestinians, because we're funding both. 
to curtail this Gaza war after three months of incredible destruction, the U.S. has instead opted to expand this war onto another front. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is some classic U.S. foreign policy for you. That's the world we're living in. All right, until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. tired yet you know i love this song this song by the swan silvertones and you know it's a gospel song and this is you know looking for jesus running for jesus right a long time and you know what's not in this song any reference by the person singing or the people singing to jesus or god speaking to them and i have a serious question for you it's gonna sound a little silly but uh, maybe it won't sound silly. I don't know. But this, I'm totally serious with this question. Has God spoken to you? I mean, I know if you believe in God, they say God speaks to us all the time uh, through his acts, through the circumstances that he puts in front of us. But I'm talking about actual hearing the voice of God and saying something. And... What did he say? Now, I I believe in God, always have, and I hope to always will believe in God, or do. But I can honestly tell you, not at one point in my life has I ever heard the voice of God saying anything specific. Not, you know, to me, I've and I always viewed that as the way it is. Well, I pray to God... Um, you know, I'll ask him for things. I'll tell him things. I'll ask for guidance. I'll ask for wisdom. I will, you know, worship him. But he never, ever says, Frank, don't take the train today or nothing specific ever. I've never had a voice say to me anything specific. Now, it could be because I am not, you know, devout enough. I don't know what the circumstance is. But and I never really thought about it because I always just thought that unless you're Moses or something, God just carries about in a vague sort of a way. And then I started to rethink this. I started to rethink this uh, a few months ago when mayor, the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, started talking about God speaking to him. But he didn't just say God spoke to him. God told him very specific things like the equivalent of don't take the train today, Frank, or Frank, you will have a son. You will name him Carmine. Very specific. For instance, this is, I believe from April or May of last year, God told Eric Adams that he would be the mayor 30 years ago. Listen to this. 
And over 30 years ago, hearing that message from God that I was going to be mayor January 1st, 2022. And the most important part of that message was God saying, you are to tell everyone you know. Because I don't want people to think you got there because of who you are, but I want them to know you got there because of who I am. Now, I want to be clear. I mean, I believe that the mayor, that the mayor is being sincere there. I don't think he's lying at all. I believe that he believes that. But think of how specific that is. God not only told him that he would be the mayor, but he told him the specific dates that he would be the mayor. And God told him to tell everybody this. I can honestly tell you, God has never spoken to me in such a clear manner. And I was with, um, well, so that's not the only time that God has spoken to Mayor Adams. He also told him specifically how to chronicle everything that was happening. And as I moved closer and closer, God said, write in your journal everything that you see that needs to be fixed in the city. And every night before going to bed, I make another entry in my journal. Now, think about that. God is, and I want to be clear, I am not questioning that at all. I believe the mayor is sincere when he says that. God not only told him to keep a journal, but he told him what to write in it. He told him to write everything that you see that's wrong in the city. Not what's wrong in the state, not what's wrong in the country, not what's wrong when you go to visit um, your girlfriend in New Jersey, just in the city. God is limiting him to chronicling only the five boroughs. And I thought that sounds awfully specific for God, who's, you know, worried about things, at least on the whole planet, but presumably in the whole universe. And that's pretty big. And I honestly became envious of the mayor that he's gotten such specific instructions from God. And I was with Curtis uh, Sliwa, the man that Eric Adams ran against when the news broke that God was speaking to him. And Curtis said, and when you get Curtis off the air, he's a different guy. You know, you, you talk to me off the air, I'm the same guy. Curtis is a radically different guy when he's not performing. And he said to me, he said, I mean, you know me, you know, I'm dealing, I, I'm encountering homeless people all the time. I'm encountering deranged people all the time. And he said to me, the first thing that all of these people tell me that are mentally ill is that God speaks to them. And I really do think, he said this to me seriously, he, I really do think this is an indi- indi- indication of mental illness. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's an indication that he's much closer to God than I am. He's not the only one, though, that has God speaking to them about specific aspects of what is going on in politics and in their career trajectory. The Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, in December, essentially said that God prepared him to be a new Moses. Here is the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, on what God told him. Again, this is from... December, uh, actually, I'm not seeing this. If uh, 
if you could just tell me what number this is, Matt, if we if we have this here. Uh, oh, I got it. Never mind. Mike Johnson on how God spoke to him. This is from December. And the Lord very specifically told me in my prayers um, to, to prepare, uh, but to wait. Prepare for what? I said to the Lord, you know. Um, I had this sense that we were going to come to a Red Sea moment uh, in our Republican conference and and the country at large. And and he had been speaking to me uh, about this, and, and the Lord told me very clearly to prepare and be ready. Be ready for what? Okay, I don't know. We're coming to a Red Sea moment. What does that mean, Lord? Um, and then when the speaker's race happened and, and, and Kevin McCarthy, who's a dear friend of mine, was deposed, uh, vacated from the chair, oh, wow, well, this is what uh, the Lord may have been preparing us for. And so um, I, I was started praying more about that, and then the Lord began to wake me up uh, through this three-week process we're in in the middle of the night and and to speak to me and to write things down plans and and procedures and ideas on how we could pull the conference together and you know ultimately 13 people ran for the for the post um and and the lord kept telling me to wait 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 so i waited i waited and then at the end when it came to the end the lord said now step forward me so and there's a lot more to that he gets into some detail and i think the same thing about speaker mike johnson that i think about eric adams I believe he is being totally sincere there. So you have two men, two of the most prominent politicians in America, that say not only does God speak to them, God speaks to them with a specificity about politics and government and their career choice that is incredibly awe-inspiring. That's the only way I could put it. And I'm curious... Are they in the minority or am I in the minority? Does God speak to you regularly, as he apparently does to Eric Adams and Mike Johnson? Or was it a one-time thing? And what did he say? 800-848-9222. Does God speak to you or has God spoken to you literally? And what did he say? A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space, and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Hello there, David, in California. What's on your mind? Oh, how are you? Yeah, uh, Frank, right? Yeah, I, I think uh, so. was I was interested in a whole different topic, but it's funny. Uh, you, you ever heard of the word serendipity? Yes. Well, I kind of uh, go by that. And uh, there's uh, one time I was driving with my wife. Uh, we were living out in Colorado. Uh, there was uh, We were on a highway stretch late at night. And uh, we were on a stretch of highway that there were probably at least five miles between the, the, the ramps. And I realized I had missed my exit. And the, the interstate highway was deserted. So I just turned around and was driving the, the wrong way. I, I only had to go back about a mile to that exit ramp, and it was dead quiet out there. There was nobody coming. I stayed on the shoulder. But by God, when I got to this uh, bridge, I looked in there, and there was a, a, a motorcycle wreck. And the guy was laying, you know, in, unconscious next to his motorcycle. And there was no way to have seen that motorcycle unless I was going the wrong way up the highway. Well, so you so, believe that's God's way of communicating with you? 
Well, that's serendipity. Right. I sure saved his life. You well, know, I, sure. I don't know. Yeah, no, so I, David, I, I can, I, I've experienced things like that. And I think a lot of people have experienced things like that. That's a sign. That is what I would characterize as indirect communication with God. That's not what Mike Johnson is talking about. That's not what Eric Adams is talking about. They're saying specifically, God said to run for this office on this date. In the case of Eric Adams, 30 years ago, he said, you will become the mayor in January of 2022. That's not a sign. That's not, oh, if I had done this, then I wouldn't have done that. No, no, this is direct communication, which I've never experienced. Am I not praying hard enough? Do I not believe enough? Has this happened to you? A direct communication to God, something along the lines of, I don't know, whatever God sounds like, whether it's Morgan Freeman or Jess, uh, or Jeffrey Hunter saying, this is God, apply for this job on December 12th. That's never happened to me. It's happened to these guys who, and I want to be very clear, I'm not poking fun. I think they're being sincere. Has it ever happened to you? And what did he say? 800-848-9222. John, what do you have for us? You know, I had some situations in my life where um looking for the answers, really trying times in my life. And uh, God spoke to me. I can't say the word God. I mean, there's something was told to me and put me in direction. And answers were revealed to me and exposed to me. Very interesting things happened to me. And I can say there is some kind of something was there that was guiding me to show me something that I need to see. And uh, um, there was a spoken word. I don't know if I really heard something, but I did hear something. I did hear something that led me to uh, to, to visually see something happening in my life. So I've I had this many times happen to me. And I don't think it's I don't think it's by accident either. So uh, I think guys like also the mayor, he's a little contrived his stories. I think he wants to think that's the truth. I think it's, <laughs> in the way he describes it's always. It's always dedicated to like his political situations, but uh, with me, like I said, I had, there was some things shown to me, and I want to say I heard things, but mostly it was mostly expressed to me. So right. See, that's, that's how I think it is for for me. Right. I mean, things are expressed yeah. to you, but yes. these guys are talking pretty specifics, and that's what I'm wondering: Has anyone else experienced something that specific of direct communication of? This is the time you should run for Speaker of the House. This is the time that you will be mayor. This is what I want you to write in your journal. I've never experienced anything like that, and I wonder if most people have. Or is this something that only happened? Maybe that's the reason that Mike Johnson is Speaker of the House and Eric Adams is mayor. Maybe they really were chosen by God. Um, Because that's certainly what they believe. I strongly believe in all my heart God said, I'm going to take the most broken person and I'm going to elevate him to the place of being the mayor of the most powerful city on the globe. 800-848-9222. Jay is in Cincinnati. Hi, Jay. How you doing, Frank? It's, it's more of a warm feeling, Frank. I ride motorcycles. We used to give uh, hot-looking drunk girls rides on motorcycles during the weekend in the, in the uh, bar section downtown. And I've had many close calls where uh, automobiles run red lights, and you have near misses. 
And once you realize that, wow, it could have been me. But, you know, after a few drinks, it's not a big deal. But uh, Right, but have you ever experienced God actually speaking directly to you in terms of specifics about your career or your life and certain dates and things that you should do? No, it was never like a... Uh, right, okay, know, so that, that's what I'm like looking for. Interview. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for someone that has had a specific communication like he has with Mike Johnson and Eric Adams. 800-848-9222. Uh, Joe is in the Queens. Hi, Joe. Yeah, Frank, I'll, I'll give you two concepts and a suggestion before, uh, you know, there might not be enough time for a story. But one thing is uh, look for something that addresses a personal detail and see if that's sourced from your prayer as a prayer answer. So it's a detail that's personally you. Second, if you're thinking of get, you're getting an answer, look for a confirmation, which is like two witnesses or two situations that confirm the message. And then here's a suggestion. It hasn't snowed in Staten Island in 700-plus days. Say a prayer for 10 inches or more of snow next week, and if you get that answer, God's spoken to you. Well, so let's say I do that, right? Let's say I yeah. do that and, and it doesn't snow. Then um, what, does that, that means God hasn't spoken to me, I guess. On that issue, he didn't answer yes. Right. But, I, I mean, if you, you could tip the scales. I don't right. want 10 inches sure. of snow. Sure, well, I bet. Right. But, Joe, but see, that is, again, more vague. It's more of a sign. What Eric Adams and Mike Johnson are talking about are specifics. I mean, okay, let me give you a specific that's happened to me that's weird. I had an appearance, and I'm listening to, say, the radio, or it was the Alexa, and I had, this, this lasted 10 seconds, too. They had to be angels said to me, it's too loud, it's too loud, turn it down, talking about it. Uh, literal voice, literal voice. And I take that as a message that someone doesn't want me to lose my hearing. Oh, interesting. Hearing. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, well, so that uh, yeah. is a specific. I'm not making this up. Oh, I believe you. I believe you. <laughs> I believe you. Thank you, Joe. All right, so we have one one specific divine communication. And I'm wondering what, John, what Joe's doing that I'm not. I'd love to hear from God regularly. Directly. Not through signs. Right or, or metaphors or seeing things that I think God has placed in front of me, but actually like Eric Adams does and Mike Johnson does. I'm curious if anybody else does here specifically. 800-848-9222. Roger is in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Hi, Roger. Yeah, hi, thanks. Um, I, I don't recall any scriptures in New Testament, Old Testament, except for when God would directly speak to prophets. But um, in the... Um, Oh, actually, you know what? There is um, in the New Testament, uh, God told Peter to go over to such and such over to Joppa and you would find somebody. Well, first of all, to me, no, I don't know of anybody who has uh, ever received any kind of specific uh, instruction or message, anything from God. Now, I sometimes when I pray, uh, my conscience would alarm would go off. And it, and I could kind of tell, you know, well, this is referring to me, or this is uh, what I've done wrong, or I or the same thing. If I see a scripture, I says, uh oh, I says, uh, you know, 
and my conscience would go off. Oh, that applies to me in such and such a way. And um, and I personally will consider that that's basically God waking right, me no, up about something. I, 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 I get that. This I get that. But you know, like if you, I mean, I'm, well, yeah. I'm, you're familiar with the Book of Genesis, Roger. When when God specifically tells Adam, "Eat of every tree in the garden." Uh, except that one, don't eat from that one, that's specific. That's kind of like the instructions he gave Eric Adams. Now, maybe it's because Eric Adams is named for the first man, Adam. Uh, but I've well, never experienced a specific thing where God says, Frank, don't eat from the tree. Nothing like that. Or write in your journal about the problems affecting your county. Nothing ever like that. And I'm just wondering why if why God speaks to Mike Johnson, Eric Adams, Adam, Ezekiel, Moses, but not me. Well, you know, first of all, when you talk when you talk about this politics and elected mayor, first of all, to show you how little God cares about us and po- I mean about this life and politics is uh, with the whole uh, episode of the uh, um, paying taxes, and he tells Peter go out cast a line and uh, and and pull in, and that's where he pulls the, the, the coins and, and the fish supposedly, if that's actually really happened. And uh, he's not God is not really all that concerned about politics. Right, I wouldn't think lives. so. I wouldn't think so. Right, and so, uh, but he's know, involved in the speaker of the house race. Ago, yeah. You know, um, um, I was taught, my mother taught me a long time ago that um, there's a difference between conscience and rationalization. And I think what sometimes those people do, they imagine. All right. Thank you, Roger. 800-848-9222. Joan is in Manhattan. Hi, Joan. Oh, hi. Hi, Frank. I'm too much of a skeptic or agnostic to have one of these experiences myself. But I love the story that Martin Luther King used to tell. And we've got Martin Luther King Day coming up on Monday. Absolutely. So how timely, right? He, he, one of my favorite stories, and I recorded it once because I wanted to get the language exact. He was talking about in the beginning when he started his work, you know, his civil rights work, he was in his 20s and he had a particularly bad phone call that night, someone threatening him in a particularly bad way. And he couldn't get back to sleep, so he got up made himself a cup of coffee. He said, I couldn't talk to my father, who I would normally talk to at a moment like this, because he was traveling somewhere. So I spoke, and now this is the language he used, I spoke to that person that my father taught me to talk to at moments like this. And I bowed my head and I folded my hands And I said, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. I think I'm doing the right thing, but I lack courage. And then he said, and this was his words, it seemed I heard a voice within me say, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, Mm -hmm. stand up for justice, and I will be with you. You will never be alone. I will never leave you alone. And I love that story. Um, He says he heard the voice within himself. Clearly, he doesn't say the word Jesus, but we know he's a Christian. We know he's a Baptist preacher, and he believes in Jesus. So he feels he's talking to Jesus. I would say, being, like I said, the skeptic that I am, I'd say the voice, he said it was within himself. I'd say it's his stronger self talking, giving courage to his weaker self. You know, like we always have arguments with ourselves. 
Should I, shouldn't I do it? Sure, do it. And we talk to ourselves in our heads. And I think that's what he was doing. But who am I to say? Well, he said it was Jesus, you know. Right. Who, who are any of us to say? Right, Joan? Thank you. 800-848-9222. Heidi in the Bronx, you have an instance of uh, God speaking to you. Tell me about it. Uh, yeah, hi, um, Frank. So um, you're not the only one. I wish uh, he would speak to me too. But um, back in 2000, uh, I had a very difficult decision to make and I didn't know what to do. Like before I went to sleep, I said, what should I do? What should I do? One night I had a dream. It's a dream. He didn't actually speak to me. This was in a dream. Well, that counts. Sure. And I And I heard a voice and I still remember those words. And it's back in 2000. You are under personal guidance. And I saw a hand with some, I think, golden beige type of glove reaching out. No person like a hand with a glove, like golden glove. And the words were, you are under personal guidance. And the next day when I woke up, I all of a sudden, like my worry, should I, I don't want to get into it, what the decision was. But I had all of a sudden a calmness and I knew, oh, my God, no matter what I end up doing with this, it will turn out right. Because, you know, I had somebody tell me in the dream and I don't know, God, uh, you are under personal guidance. And unfortunately, um, you know, I haven't really had anything like I'm always waiting for things. Everybody's going through hard times and, and you know, we all, everybody deals differently with it. And, you know, in, in the today's life, you know, I have situations I have to sure. take care of. And I always say, God, you know, why are you not listening to me? And now I feel like that he's kind of abandoned me. And I'm always waiting, oh, please give me a dream or something. He doesn't. So I really don't know how it works. But I believe at the end of the day, there are always reasons, you know, why we don't get the answer. Maybe we have to wait for, you know, the right time. Maybe you're right, Heidi, uh, and I think I think your phone is uh, cutting out there. Heidi, thank you for sharing that. I, I appreciate that. I think speaking to a dream definitely counts. There are many instances in uh, the Bible where God does speak through dreams. 800-848-9222. David in North Carolina, God has spoken to you. What did he say? Hey, Frank, it's wonderful to speak with you. Likewise. Listen, this is very simple. If you read the Bible— and believe in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When Jesus died on that cross, the Lord gave us the Holy Spirit that dwelled in us if we received him into our hearts. And through the Holy Spirit, we seek out God's direction. We pray, I guarantee Mayor Adams, uh, Mr. Johnson, they were probably saved at a young age, believed in the Lord, um, turned their life over to the Lord, and through that Holy Spirit, they seeked out what direction. Lord, lead me. And I believe that's what they're saying. They're not saying an actual voice. No, no, I think they are saying an actual voice, David. I mean, if you listen 
there's specifics in terms of dates and in terms of instructions. So I appreciate what you're yeah. saying, which is more in line with what I've heard from people that I've uh, spoken to and in from my own experience. But I think they're talking about specifics. I, I think they're seeking out. I think, you know, I can't tell you what they they are thinking or what they're hearing. I almost guarantee they're seeking it out. Eric, at a young age, he probably that was probably his dream to be mayor. I don't know who the mayor was at, when he was young, but there's something in his life that said, man, I want to be mayor. And he started seeking that out. Mr. Johnson, I know he's a, um, he's a Christian. Sure. And, you know, the Lord led his path to the speakership, and he set he seeked that out. David, I believe that's what they're talking about. I don't think it's an actual voice. David, thank it's, you. I just want to get at least one or two more people here before we get to know him, Layden. I um I think they're talking about an actual voice. Uh, that's what the way it sounds like to me. There's no ambiguity. There's no God sent me a sign or God gave me a signal or God gave me the strength or God uh, encouraged me or something directed me beyond my control. No, it's specific. 800-848-9222. Uh, Jack is calling from Maryland. Hi, Jack. Hi, how you doing, Frank? Um, listen, uh, this is something that I studied a lot. I read the Bible for years, and I speak with uh, another Christian twice a week since 2011. I wanted to let you know that in the old days, before the Bible was completed, God used prophets like Samuel to bring his word to the people, and that was it. Um, um, but the believers back then, before the Bible was completed, they spoke in tongues. And though God always allowed an interpreter to be present, in other words, to interpret what the um, was being said. Once the Bible was completed, there was no more speaking in tongues. The Bible says God is not the author of confusion. Um, and I, my son had a girlfriend years ago, and she would say, Dad, I don't know how to tell my girlfriend this, but she believes her mother is blowing on her neck, her deceased mother. And it makes her feel comforted. He says, will you please have a talk with her? And I was a little like, well, you know, I guess I should let her know. So I had a talk with her, and I told her, I said, look, this is not your mom. You know, you have God, and you have good, and you have evil. You have Satan and demons. And a lot of times, this is what would happen if there's these things manifesting. Um, it's just that you're right, Frank. You're not going to hear the word of God coming as a voice. Stay away from that. God is not the author of confusion. So I just wanted to mention that there's so much going on, and everybody says, oh, it's great. I had this wonderful dream. It was beautiful. I was floating to heaven, the gates, the pearly gates. Be careful. God is not the author of confusion. Somebody would say, well, how do you know that was from God and not the devil? How do you know it was good and not evil? Because it was beautiful. I saw all these angels. Don't be fooled. Only through Scripture can we hear God? All right. Now, well, I mean, if you're, going, if you're going down the road and there's a left and a right, and you're not sure where you're going, like the one gentleman said, um, that he ran right. into a motorcycle guy. Yeah, that Jack, saved I, I understand now, all. I, the, I, I understand all that, right? I understand all that. But if you look at the specific instances in the Bible 
both Old Testament and New Testament, and I'm sure the Quran and the Book of Mormon and whatever Bible you believe in, there's not just a couple of instances of God speaking to people. There's many. Adam, Noah, Job, Jacob, David, Solomon, Elijah, Isaiah, Hosea, uh, everybody, Peter, Luke, John, and obviously Jesus himself. Jesus is in a special category. No one's ever spoken to me the way God has spoken to Adam, Eric Adams, and Mike Johnson. And I'm wondering, does God not speak audibly anymore as he did to those folks? Or uh, clearly, I'm missing something that Speaker Johnson is in tune to and Eric Adams is. We'll do one more and then we'll go to Nome. I know Paulie and Brooklyn will straighten us out. Hey, Paulie. Hey, Frank, let me tell you. First, you got a great show. I love it. I got to tell you, this struck a... This struck me in my, in my heart, honest to God. I'm going to tell you the truth. And this is in 1981. That's 1981. I was working stock at a hardware store not far from where I am now, Bad Beach. Let me tell you. And I, I was no angel. I had a drug problem. I did a lot of drinking. I cheated on my wife. I was a lowlife. I'm my. telling you, this is the truth. And I owed $1,200 to a loan shark. He caught me in an alley. He said, I'm going to break both your legs. Both your legs are going to break if you don't have it by, by Thursday night. This was on a Monday night. I go home. I'm crying. I'm trying to pack my bags and leave town. And, Frankie, as I'm talking to you, this is the truth. I hear a voice. And I was a gambler. And I lost a lot of money gambling. And a voice came to me, and it said, and it was the voice of God. He said, Yonkers, three and two, daily double." You listening to me? I'm listening. I'm eager to this know. Is the truth. And yeah. Frank, what's that? I'm eager to know what happened. Did you place that bet? As I live and breathe, as I'm talking to you today, and thank God I don't gamble no more. I don't drink no more. I love my wife. I humble myself to her. And we've been married for the last 43 years perfectly. And she's a great woman for staying with me when I was a lowlife. But I heard the voice of God. He said, I'm not going to let you get, get beat up by the, the uh, loan shark uh, goon squad. He said, three and two, Wednesday night, Yonkers. I went there, and I, I'll tell you the truth. I, got, I borrowed some money. I borrowed some money. I put down there on that night, I put down 200 bucks is all I could get because I was flat broke. The horses came in. They were 12 to one. I won back all the money, paid off the loan shark. I haven't had a drink. I haven't taken no drugs. And I, I haven't cheated on my wife or done anything wrong in all that time. That was the voice of God. Now, wait. I want you to know, Frankie, I am not a political person. So comes years later, 2015, I, I turn on the TV, and there's Donald Trump. And if I tell you now, as I live and breathe, Frank, that was the voice I heard that saved my life, that gave me the 3-2 on the Daily Double in 1983. Wait, wait, you mean to tell me that God's voice, the God that told you to place this bet, uh, that saved your life, saved your marriage, uh, really changed your whole life, that was Donald Trump's voice? That's what, and I didn't know from Donald Trump, I never followed the news or nothing, but then it started coming around when he was running, like, you know, eight years ago, and all of a sudden he speaks. The first time I really ever heard him speak, I didn't watch on news, and I, I swear to God, I, I got a cold shiver. 
I had a, I had a, I took the first half. I, I tell you the truth. I took a half a glass of wine. It was the first time I had a drink in over 40 years. And I haven't had one since because that, that was what, that was the sound of God. And it can, and I didn't wow. hear it 40 years later. I heard that voice another time. And that was Donald Trump's voice. Maybe when, uh, tr- voice. when Trump said he'd be the greatest, uh, God, uh, pre- the greatest jobs president that God ever created. Maybe he was more right than people realized. Well, I'm telling you something. That was the voice of God. Wow. I only heard it twice in my life. That time and when Trump spoke 15. Now, wow. since then, I've heard him. But, Frank, this is a true story. So, I don't know. You could call me crazy, but I think there's a connection. Wow. Hey, who knows? You may be right, Paul. Paul, thank you Love for sharing show, that. Frank. It's the best show on radio I ever heard. Thank you very much. Wow. Uh, that's an endorsement from someone, a prophet, a modern-day prophet, Paulie in uh, Brooklyn, I mean, if they write another chapter of the Bible, it might be called the Book of Pauly. Noam Layden is here. Uh, We'll find out how much communication he does with God straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. You know, this is obviously Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. Um, We're talking about religion and God. Howard Stern said um, hearing this song was the closest that he's ever had to a religious experience when he was 13 years old. And uh, that was a major, major discovery. And it's his birthday, so it seemed apropos to to play that. 800-848-9222. We are going to get to your questions, but first... Stand by for the other side of Midnight's News. From New York City, the other side of Midnight and its affiliated stations present national and international news with Frank Morano and news director Noam Layden. Their summary of the world news and personal comments. Get the rest of the story. Hello, no. Good morning, Frank. All your talk of God fits perfectly into this study that I was going to tell you about oh. this morning from Real Clear Opinion Research. They do this every year where they take a study, talk to Americans, and ask them what they believe in. This latest study finds um, that 56.9% of Americans believe in aliens. That number is up from last year's study. 61% of Americans believe in ghosts. believe in the devil, and uh, 85% say they believe in God. 
Uh, how many? What percentage? Eighty-five percent. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's pretty good. Now the numbers are skewed a little bit. The and you might not be surprised to hear this. The highest number where people believe in God in America is down south. Oh, I'm not surprised to hear that at yeah, all. Followed by the Midwest, uh, the Northeast, and then the West Coast. They don't believe in God in the West Coast, I guess. No, not as much as they do right. down south. Okay. Um, other findings in this poll. That's uh, why they get hit with so many earthquakes out that's there. That's apparently why. Yeah. Yeah. 80% of respondents say they believe Jesus is God or the Son of God. 84% say they believe in heaven. Another 83% believe in miracles. Uh, 52% believe in witches. Uh, 70% of Americans believe in hell. So that's interesting. And then uh, the high belief in spiritual topics appears to be in line with this recent survey from the Pew Research Center, which said seven uh, out of 10 Americans believe in spiritual uh, beliefs in some way or being. Mm -hmm. And they didn't really be specific about that. But um, in terms of the God numbers, those are the highest they've been in the last couple of years in any of these polls. I wonder what that's about. I wonder, you know, what they attribute the uptick in God belief to. Don't know. It doesn't say in the study. You know, they just sort of ask these generic questions. Yeah. Well, that is interesting. I wonder. Uh, there is this Facebook page, and there's a lot of them all across the country that have become incredibly popular. It is called, Are We Dating the Same Guy? Have oh, you heard boy. of this Facebook page? I, no, but I've heard of similar entities, and I gather by the title that I know exactly what this is. Tens of thousands of women are on this page called, Are We Dating the Same Guy? They are based by city. So there's one in New York. In fact, it started in New York about two years ago, and it was a way to protect women from creepy guys. So the way this works is women can anonymously post about men who've done sort of creepy, weird, or just odd people or, uh, on this page. They uh, put up a picture of the person, real picture of the person, of the man, to warn other women. They put their first name up. And um, all kinds of warnings. So I was looking through this page last night. A lot of them are pictures of guys who are married. And it's women warning, hey, this guy is married. And there's this guy. And it's like a picture Mm -hmm. of somebody. His name's David or whatever. And then there's tons of comments underneath from other people who, by the way, have also gone out with this guy and then found out later that he was Uh, married. uh. Then there's more, you know, serious ones of people who might have been physically attacked. Of course, that's even more important. But most of these are just uh, pictures of guys who are just weird, did weird things on the date, um, did weird things or said things, mm-hmm. um, uh, were uh, needy, latched themselves on to this, uh, these women. And if you go to these pages, and by the way, every big city has one now. I mean, there are hundreds of these pages, and I could say hundreds of thousands of women following these pages, which makes it one of the bigger Facebook pages out there now. So you say, okay, this is great, probably good mm-hmm. for women to have this sense of safety. Right. Of course, when they go out on a date, then they're not going out with somebody who's just weird or creepy or going to do something to them. Well, fast forward to today. There is a guy in Chicago. He is suing uh, this, announced this lawsuit yesterday. He's suing more than 50 people and companies over these posts that appeared or in the on this website, on this, I should say, Facebook page. Are we dating the same guy? It is the first time there's been a legal battle over this page. He says that these women have said things about him that are wrong. Uh, they had accused him of ghosting women, which, of course, means, uh, you know, right. it goes out once and then he disappears. Uh, others say that he is needy. He says that he's lost 
income. I don't know how he's going to prove this, but I imagine he is. He's got these lawyers working for him. He's lost income. But more importantly, he says he's lost his reputation to date other women. And uh, I went and looked uh, at his page. It's still up, his picture of him. And it was amazing how many comments were underneath his name talking about weird things that he had done on dates. He says none of it's true. It's ruined his reputation. He's suing Facebook, a whole bunch of other entities around Facebook. These women, $75 million, he says he wants. Well, I don't think he's going to have much luck with Facebook precisely because Facebook and these other social media companies enjoy the Section 230 protection, which we've heard uh, a lot about in the past. But I also wonder, I mean, it, it almost strikes me as if you're a company and you sell products on Amazon, people can write a negative review of your product on Amazon. That's true. I mean, what are, you know, if he is able to even get this case to survive summary judgment, why would every company not just uh, go after everyone that writes them these negative reviews? Because this is basically what this is the equivalent of. You bring up an excellent point. It'll be interesting to see if Judge takes on this case. I don't see it going anywhere. The uh, lawyer in this case says he thinks he has something that they've ruined his reputation by saying by fa- you know sending around false rumors online about him. Yeah, I, it'll be an interesting discovery process if it even gets there. I am very. That's a fascinating case, and I haven't seen that anywhere. As you always do. By the way, Frank, bring another another I, story. I, no one else has. I talked about. Just to make sure, no pictures of you on that. Thank uh, you. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I would like to think people would Tony say nice and, things. Tony and the other guys back there, well, I don't know. Yeah, have to go no, look and no, say, yeah. that's for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> what else do you have for us? No. Uh, oh, you know, sometimes we think we are the stupidest people in the world. You, you know? and me? Well, just Americans. Uh-huh. We're, we're kind of down on each on ourselves when it right. comes to education, right? There's all these reports that come sure. out that say the people around the world are smarter than us. Well, here's proof that... We uh, that we're not the dumbest people in okay, the world. I like that. Uh, the uh, in Taiwan, you know, they have this presidential race going on, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the campaigns they were handing out these bags of information about the presidential candidate, and in there they put these uh, laundry detergent pods. To say, and they said, here, each pod will wash 18 pounds of laundry, and it was part of this whole idea to wash away the administration yeah. there. It's now clever. you know, it's clever. yeah. Uh, I can't tell you how many people have eaten these pods over the last week. Now, you know, we had that issue here. Yeah, the Tide Challenge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, But these are people who thought it was candy. And in three cases, people got, and thankfully nobody's died, but in three cases, people have gotten really, really sick, ended up in the hospital, had to have their stomachs pumped. And so now this candidate, who is, by the way, relatively popular, don't know if they have a shot of winning, who's relatively popular, has now had to go on out and put campaign commercials online saying, hey, I know I handed out tens of thousands of these, uh, these pods, laundry pods. Don't eat them. They're not candy. I will say in defense of the people that have eaten them, not in defense of the candidate, because I've advised a lot of candidates over the years running for various offices. Never once did I ever encourage anybody to hand out something that could be poisoned, right. because it's, it's not a good look for the campaign no. if even one person consumes it. But um, these pods, they do look pretty they do. delicious. They do look like candy. And they smell good. Exactly. But you smell them and you're like, okay, this is detergent. Exactly. Right. But I could see kids eating them as candy. You think adults would be a little brighter, but no. And these were all adults, by the way, that have eaten these Very pots. interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Noam. Sure. Have a great weekend. And now you know the rest of the story. 15 seconds of fame in a moment. We'll let you uh, be heard on any subject you like for 15 seconds. Start queuing up now. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight.
It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. All right, we shortchanged you with 15 seconds of fame yesterday because Brian Kilmeade um, gave, you know, lengthy answers uh, and substantive answers. Good stuff. But we'll try and give you a couple, a little extra time today. We've got a great show Monday for you. Uh, I think Freddie Mertz is going to be here. I think uh, Jeremy Murphy is going to be here. And um, so we're going to delve in a little bit more to this Middle East situation um, as well. A lot of other things I'm working on as well for Monday. But first... The other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Brandon, congratulations on your son's win today. Thank you very much. That was very nice for him. I, I'm surprised to hear that God's voice is the voice of Donald Trump. I always thought it would sound more like Noam Laden. <laughs> John. Good morning, Frank. John, go ahead. You got 15 seconds. John. Hi, Frank. I want to tell everyone listening, God speaks to all of us. We have to listen. We have to understand that we need to listen, and that's all we need to do. Thank you very much. Mike. Prayer is when you talk about it. You get your answers when you listen. God told me Alan West for president. Raji. He should have made the comment, you know, years before becoming mayor, not after the fact. Also, Adams should I ur- uh, should urge God, you know, to resurrect psychiatrist Sigmund Freud to save God from, from utter destruction. That- Jay. On the, on the Autobahn, the sign says, don't drive faster than your guardian angel can fly. Mike. Morning, Frank. Yesterday, I saw a CC outside of Duncan with a big bag of powdered jellies, sipping a hot cup of Brandon, probably on his way to, to his Trump bashing job for the day. Roger. You know, well, we heard in 2017 that Trump put an end finally to the Y2K study. So for 17 years, I wonder where that money is going. Now I'm wondering where the money is going for Homeland Security, since the border is wide open. Where's that money going now? Larry. Greg Gutfeld's pound, sizzle moron, sizzle. Ray. Nice tribute to uh, Russian Howard, um, Frank. And uh, my son, the same thing, cut his lip. I used new skin instead of getting him a stitch. He's got a scar. Rocco, all hollow, go to Gales, class of 75. Thank you. I'll be back Monday, God willing. Frank Morano, good day. <laughs> 